Fasting is premised on the idea that the body can heal itself. Previously, medicine was just seen as something that happened by divine fate. They said there are actual causes to diseases. We can learn to understand what those are, and sometimes we may be able to treat them. We have studies going back more than 20 years showing that, in fact, you can you can completely reverse high blood pressure. Doctors bring their biases, scientists bring their biases, just like the rest of us, and it's still a hard sell today trying to convince doctors about this. Welcome to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast, where we meet the world's top experts to explore the secrets of health, mindset, longevity, and so much more. Are you ready to take charge of your existence and biohack your life? This show is for you. Please keep in mind, we're not dispensing medical advice and are not responsible for any outcomes you may experience from implementing the tactics lying herein. Are you ready? Let's do this. Welcome back to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. Oh my goodness, friends, I am so excited about today's episode. I thought I knew a lot about fasting. Reading Steve Hendricks, The Oldest Cure in the World, Adventures in the Art and Science of Fasting blew my mind. Who knew all of this stuff was going on in the history of fasting? This really just opened my eyes to so many things. And in today's conversation, I think you guys will learn so, so much, including things like very interesting historical figures and fasting. Honestly, it's like a riveting novel or movie. It is that crazy. People like Bernard McFadden and Tanner and someone who I sort of think of as like the original IG influencer, Catherine of Siena. We talk about fasting in religion, especially a lot of the misconceptions about fasting in religion, as well as misconceptions with the Greeks. Did Hippocrates really say, let food be thy medicine? I don't know. We talk about modern day fasting and the science that's happening surrounding that, including the work of Walter Longo, the work of Dr. Alan Goldhammer at True North Health Center. I've had both of them on the show actually, so check out the show notes for links to those episodes. Basically, just prepare for your mind to be blown and definitely let me know what you think in my Facebook group, IF Biohackers, Intermittent Fasting Plus Real Foods Plus Life. Comment something you learned or something that resonated with you from this episode on the pinned post to enter to win something that I love. Also check out my Instagram, find the Friday announcement post, and again, comment there to enter to win something that I love. The show notes for this show will be at melanieavalon.com slash fasting history. Those show notes will have a full transcript, so definitely check that out. If you are enjoying this show, the honestly best way to support it is by subscribing and or writing a brief review and Apple podcast that helps so much more than most people realize. So thank you so, so much in advance for that. I have a very exciting announcement, friends. I have officially launched a TikTok channel. I've been on Instagram for a while, but it is time for TikTok. And with the channel, I'm going to be posting daily, very high quality, awesome biohacking content tips and tricks, things from my life. And I really want to bring the glam to biohacking because I feel like biohacking can be very male centric or focused on a certain type of person. And I just want to break that stereotype and bring all the sparkles. So please join me there. My handle is Melanie Avalon official. Please let me know what you'd like to see from me, what you think of the content. I do feel pretty shy about it. So please join me so that we can be friends and just go on the most epic biohacking adventure. 
Okay, friends, spirulina update. It is still coming. I know it's been taking a while. It's just because I want to make the most ideal spirulina tablets on the market, ones that are tested for purity and potency and to be free of all pesticides and just the highest quality. So we've got that spirulina source. It tastes awesome. The issue we're experiencing is that in order to make it into tablets, it requires another ingredient. If you're currently taking spirulina tablets and they say they are one ingredient, they are not one ingredient. There is something in there that is helping to keep that structure. So we're trying to figure out which route to go with this. It's really fun because I keep trying different samples. I think I know which one I like the most, but we'll see which one I end up picking. Either way, I really love the taste of our spirulina. It doesn't taste fishy or LGE, and I really experience the benefits. So stay tuned for that. In the meantime, you can get my other Avalon X supplements at avalonx.us. Friends, have you jumped on the serapeptase bandwagon yet? That's what I launched with, and to this day, it continues to be my most favorite supplement ever. It's a proteolytic enzyme created by the Japanese silkworm. When you take it in the fasted state, it actually breaks down non-living problematic proteins in your body, so it can help address an array of issues. Like I said, it will clear your sinuses, calm inflammation, it may help reduce cholesterol. Studies have shown it can break down amyloid plaque, it can help alleviate pain, and so much more. I take it daily. It is one of the most important supplements in my arsenal. This is the new year. Start it off right. Get some serapeptase. You can get 10% off with the coupon code Melanie Avalon, as well as a 20% off code when you text Avalon X to 877-861-8318. That's Avalon X to 877-861-8318. Those codes will also work with my fantastic partner, MD Logic Health. For that, go to melanieavalon.com slash mdlogic. And of course, all of my supplements I formulated to be the very best on the market. They're tested multiple times for heavy metals and mold. They're free of all common allergens as well as problematic fillers, which goes back to that whole spirulina formulation issue I was talking about. They come in glass bottles to help prevent leaching of plastics into ourselves and the environment. And we even use the minimal amount of stickiness required for the labels to help with our environmental impact. To get these fantastic products, go to avalonx.us and definitely get on my email list so that you don't miss the Spirulina launch special. For that, go to avalonx.us slash email list. Another resource for you guys if you struggle with food sensitivities like I do, you have got to get my app, Food Sense Guide. It's a comprehensive catalog of over 300 foods for 11 potentially problematic compounds. These include things you may be reacting to, like gluten, lectins, FODMAPs, histamine, oxalates, sulfites, thiols, whether or not something is a nightshade, and so much more. It even includes autoimmune paleo AIP status. You can learn about the compounds, create your own list to share and print, and finally take charge of your food sensitivities. It is a top Apple app, often in the top 10 for the Apple food and drinks charts. And friends, get it now because I'm going to be updating it to a subscription basis soon. So you definitely want to get grandfathered in for life at one super low price. With the subscriptions, by the way, I'm going to be implementing some pretty cool features. So I need to do subscriptions to help support that. So like I said, get it now before we change to subscriptions. You can get it at melanieavalon.com slash foodsenseguide. And one more thing before we jump in. Did you know there are over a thousand compounds found in conventional skincare and makeup in the U.S.? 
that have been banned in Europe due to their toxicity. If you are using conventional skincare makeup, you are directly putting into your bloodstream toxic compounds, including obesogens, which can literally cause your body to store and gain weight. So if your diet's not working, you might want to think about what's happening with your skincare makeup, as well as carcinogens linked to cancer. I'm not making this up and just endocrine disruptors in general, which mess with our hormones. Thankfully, there's an easy solution to this. There's a company called Beauty Counter, and they were founded on a mission to change this. Every single ingredient is extensively tested to be safe for your skin, so you can truly feel good about what you put on, and their products really work. I am obsessed with their overnight resurfacing peel, their vitamin C serum, they have shampoo and conditioner, skincare lines for every skin type, and incredible makeup. It's so amazing that Tina Fey actually wore all beauty counter makeup when she hosted the Golden Globes. So yes, it is high definition camera ready. You can shop with me at beautycounter.com slash Melanie Avalon and use the coupon code cleanforall20 to get 20% off site-wide. You can get the latest updates from me, specials, sales, samples, and so much more on my email list. That's at melanieavalon.com slash clean beauty. And you can join me in my Facebook group, Clean Beauty and Safe Skincare with Melanie Avalon. People share product reviews and their experiences. And I do a giveaway every single week in that group as well. And lastly, if you're thinking of making clean beauty and safe skincare a part of your future, like I have, I definitely recommend becoming a band of beauty member. It's sort of like the Amazon Prime for clean beauty. You get 10 percent back in product credit, free shipping on qualifying orders, and a welcome gift that is worth way more than the price of the year-long membership. It is totally completely worth it. And I'll put all this information in the show notes. An important announcement, friends. My EMF blocking products are coming. Make sure you don't miss the launch special. For that, get on my email list at melanieavalon.com slash EMF email list. EMFs are actually classified by the IARC as a group 2B, possibly carcinogenic to humans. These are such a problem. We are exposed to them through our Wi-Fi, our cell phones, our AirPods, And they are linked to so many health issues, including anxiety, migraines, headaches, even fertility issues. This is such a problem. Thankfully, you can address your EMF exposure. I'm going to help with that with my Avalon X EMF blocking product line. So again, get on my email list at melanieavalon.com slash EMF email list to check that out. All right, without further ado, please enjoy this wonderful conversation with Steve Hendricks. Hi, friends. Welcome back to the show. I am so incredibly excited about the conversation that I am about to have. Oh, my goodness. So, the backstory on today's conversation I get, I guess, hit with a lot of people with books that would love to come on the show. And sometimes I get information from an agent or publicist about a book, and it's just an immediate yes. I don't even need to have even started reading the book to know I want to interview this person. And so that happened with Steve Hendricks, who has a new book out called The Oldest Cure in the World, Adventures in the Art and Science of Fasting. So obviously I saw the title and I was like, yes, (laughs) full speed ahead. And then I got the book and oh my goodness, friends, I was blown away by this book. I spend so much time reading studies about fasting and just thinking about fasting and so much of my life is about fasting. There is so much information in this book that I had never even remotely, possibly even briefly heard of. And it's honestly mind-blowing, especially when I think about how I'll often read, you know, scientific studies about fasting and they'll be like a sentence. Well, they'll be like, fasting has been used for, you know, so many years in history. 
this book covers all of that. (laughs) How fasting has been used in history or not used, the forces that kept it going or were against it, all of the people involved. It's mind-blowing. And then not only is it the history of fasting, but Steve also provides his personal experience with fasting, which is super cool, and dives into the science and lets us know where fasting is today. So I have so many questions for this man. Steve, thank you so much for your time and thank you for being here. Oh, it's great to be with you, Melanie. I hope I can live up to that fantastic and very kind introduction. Thanks a million. I have so many questions for you. I want to hear your personal story, but just a question to start off because I'm I'm so curious. I mean, this book is like a textbook <laughs> and it's like all of this history. How do you find all of this information? Like, do you look at Wikipedia? Like, where like, where does one go to collect all of this information? Yeah, I mean, the, the difficulty is that it's not in any one place. But that's, of course, what makes, I think, the book very valuable. It is, you know, what I wanted it to be was to be both super comprehensive, and it sounds like I checked that box for you, which is great. But I also wanted it to be lively. I wanted it to be a more vivid, with characters and stories, you know, a, a very relatable chronicle that people could, you know... You wouldn't think of a fasting book as a page turner, but that was my aim. My aim was to have the pages just fly by, even though there was a lot of information. Now, where do you go to find it? The book is sort of divided into to three sections that are all sort of intertwined and overlapping. But as you said, it's the history of fasting and the science of fasting and my own experiences with fasting. So for the science of fasting, I go exactly where you go, which is reading those scientific studies and, you know, interviewing the the most prominent researchers who have something interesting to say. The the history was the trickier thing because there's so much written about the history of fasting and, and unfortunately a ton of it is wrong. So you really have to dig pretty deep and Quite often, you know, there was, you know, an academic at some point will have written a book about fasting for a certain 500-year period in the Middle Ages. Okay, awesome, great. So, I've got that period covered. Now, what do I do about the other, like, 2,000 years of history before that? And it's a real mix. So, sometimes I'm reading academics' books. Sometimes I'm reading their studies. In a few cases, I'm going to the actual, you know, Greek or Latin or whatever sources, and I'm trying to find someone on social media who will, you know, be kind enough to translate sentences that I'm having trouble, you know, figuring out. But most most of the time I'm relying on, you know, I'm a reporter. So I'm relying on, I'm reporting on the work of academics. And fortunately, while there's not as much out there about fasting as we'd like, there is a ton out there if you just sort of uncover all the stones. And that's that's what added up to the book. I'm just blown away. I can't even imagine how much you had to read to to get to it. And I will say, so you check the box about the, you know, comprehensive history. You definitely check the box, the second one about, you know, being lively and creating characters and page turner. I mean, these people, I mean, there were literally times my mouth dropped open when I read parts about some of these things happening, which we can get into in this show. Uh, if, you could, if you could see me blushing now, you're, I, <laughs> don't stop, don't stop. No, like some of the stuff about like the the females fasting and the, the religious aspect of all of that. I mean, there's so many things. We can circle back to all that. But before that, your personal story, obviously this is in the book. And I'll just say, friends, listeners, we're not even going to remotely touch on everything in this book. So just get it now and you can hear everything. But you do share a lot about your personal fasting experience. So could you tell listeners a little bit about that? You're a reporter. Why did you become interested in fasting? Why are you writing about it now? I know you tried to write about it earlier and 
you know, things happened with that. So why are you where you are today? Yeah. So I first started writing about fasting in an article that I published for Harper's Magazine about 10 years ago. And that was back in a time where there weren't a lot of people fasting as there as there are today. And so it was viewed with a lot of skepticism. And I had come, I wrote that article because I had, I had come to become fascinated with fasting myself and I had practiced it myself. The, the centerpiece of the article was this 20-day fast that I had done. At that time, I was about 40 years old, maybe in my late 30s when I did this. I, I fasted for two reasons, one of which was the one that so many people come to fasting for. I just wanted to lose weight. Like a lot of people, I had put on a pound or two, you know, kind of every year in my 20s and 30s. And, you know, I'm five foot nine on a good day. And I was weighing, you know, close to 170 pounds. Whereas when I was at my lean in college, you know, I'd weigh 140. Partly, I just wanted to lose weight. But I'd gotten interested in fasting and learned about fasting in the first place because because I also was very interested in fasting for longevity. I had originally started with caloric restriction, which as most of your listeners probably know, just means sharply limiting how many calories you're getting every day while still getting all your necessary nutrients. The problem with CR, caloric restriction, is it is just fiendishly hard to do. It is just impossible. You're walking around hungry all the time. And if you're a mere mortal like me, you're not some superhuman person, you just can't stick with caloric restriction. But the irony, of course, is that you can get many of the exact same benefits from a prolonged fast as you do in caloric restriction, yet you don't feel hunger. The irony is by doing the you know most calorically restricting thing of all, just simply not eating, your hunger actually gets suppressed. And so it becomes a much more doable thing. So this was very appealing to me. So someone who weighed too much and wanted to weigh less and was curious because I'd read these sort of historic accounts of people who'd done long fasts, I wanted to see what it was like. Now, I'll, I'll caution and say, say, knowing what I know now, I would not undertake a 20-day fast on my own without some kind of medical supervision because there are too many things that can go wrong. I'm not telling the audience what to do or what not to do, but you know, I want to caution that like fasting doctors have very good reason for saying you don't really want to be doing really long fasts on your own because some things could go wrong. But with that caveat, I did that 20-day fast. It went fantastic. I had you know, a lot of ups and downs that a lot of other people, you know, have described when fasting, but ultimately found it to be a very satisfying experience. And I lost all the weight that I wanted to lose. So it was fantastic. And I, and I, I wrote this article and I'd, I'd like to tell you that, you know, in the 10 years since I wrote that article, it's all been, you know, a carpet of uh, rose petals in my path. But that has not been the case. We can talk about that. But my health actually deteriorated over the years throughout my 40s. I'm 52 now. And it was eventually fasting and I believe dietary change that have rescued me. That was something that I loved was that you, you've had so many experiences with fasting. Like for me, I started doing intermittent fasting in college and I did the type I'm still doing today, which is one meal a day eating at night. I haven't done a long extended fast like you. I haven't done, you tried ADF, you've gone to fasting clinics. I was really thrilled because in the opening of the book, you talk about, and throughout the book, Alan Goldhammer, who I've had on the show at True North, and I was super excited to hear your experience there. So it's super valuable, I think, that you have had experience with all of these different fasts. And there's something I wanted to, to comment on really quickly. 
I love the distinction that you have between fasting and calorie restriction. Like, for example, you talk in the book about people looking at World War II and starvation and saying, well, if, if fasting has all these health benefits, you know, why did people not get really healthy from starvation in World War II? And it's the subtle nuance of having, you know, just enough calories to not let you actually be fasting. And then they're also malnourished, you know, not having enough food. So there's so much complexity and I'm so happy that you tackle all of it. So there's so many directions I, I want to go with this. You talked about the, the colorful characters in the history of fasting. I imagine, because there were so many different people, why did you settle on Dr. Henry Tanner as the father of modern fasting? And why did you choose to open the book with his story and everything that he did? Yeah, great question. So, Henry Tanner was this doctor who was born in the 1830s. He's, I would say he was a doctor. He, he was indeed a doctor, but not a medical doctor. He was what was then called an eclectic doctor, which is something like a naturopath today. So, he was an alternative medicine practitioner. And somewhere along the way, he had picked up fasting, short fasts, you know, a couple days here, three days there, as a useful tool. Well, it turned out in 1877, he had fallen on hard times. He had just lost his wife. He was living in a Twin Cities of Minnesota then. And he had all kinds of ailments. He had uh, a stomach condition that may have been a stomach flu. He had basically a something that sounded like a nervous breakdown. He had heart problems and so on. And he decides then that he's going to fast long enough to either cure himself or by one account to kill himself. And he didn't care what the difference was. So I started with him in part because he's such a quirky character. I'm not very good at remembering my own quotations and so on, but some of the things that he said were, you know, just out of left field, but also because he was the first person who in a scientific kind of way, in a, case, in a case study scientific kind of way, sat down and said, well, I'm going to fast and I'm going to see if fasting cures me and see what happens. And he did it, you know, previous, there had been previous doctors along the way who had been noticing these cures and trying to write about it, but he did it in a way that got the, the message out to the entire world. So what happens is he does this fast. At this time, it was expected, people thought at this time, you could not go longer than eight to 10 days without food or you would die. And what Tanner found is when he reached eight to 10 days, not only had all of his problems started falling away and all of them eventually got cured in, in, in the accounts of the, of the, that we have of this fast, but he, he felt even better. He felt even stronger than he ever had before. And so he ended up finding out, you know, on, on day 20 something or whatever of his fast, because he just kept going and going because he was curious to see how long this fast could go without his suffering. He would find himself walking 10, 15, 20 miles a day, which is, you know, vigorous exercise for 1877. That could be a lot of exercise today, right? So, he does this fast, he cures himself, he breaks his fast after 41 days, and he had no intention of advertising it. But a friend of his, another doctor who had helped sort of supervise him during his fast, reported it in a medical journal in Chicago. It got out to the world and everyone just completely ridiculed him, said they must, he must be lying. There's no way that you could fast this long. So through a series of other events, He's, he's wanting to prove himself right to, you know, redeem his name. And an opportunity arises for him to go to New York City three years later in 1880 and there to repeat his fast of 40 days on a stage in front of people in New York. He was completely ridiculed at first, but 
there was this purient interest in his fast because, oh my gosh, he's going to fast, you know, beyond perhaps eight to 10 days. What's going to happen? Is he going to die on stage? Interest grew and grew. This was a presidential election year. He was getting more coverage than the presidential contenders. His feet was being recorded all over the world. He went through the eight to 10 days with no problem and kept fasting for 20 days and then 30 and eventually broke his fast at 40 days. And what happened with this, unfortunately, when he was in New York, he didn't have anything wrong with him. You know, he wanted to prove that fasting could cure. He didn't have anything to be cured. So it didn't make the splash that he wanted it to make. But but because it was reported in every newspaper in the United States and most of the newspapers in, in Europe and even some in Africa and Asia, he got the message out, the idea out that fasting might just be curative. And from that point on, that's really where we see this this more scientific interest in fasting for health taking off in a way that it never had before. Because it's fasting and it's counterintuitive and people don't want to do it, it was a very, very slow growth to get from there to where we are today. But without Henry Tanner, we wouldn't be where we are today. It sounds like social media. You know, like the first time fasting was like in the the eye of the public and people were, everybody was paying attention. So on this stage, he literally just sat on the stage. It was a very barren stage because they wanted to make sure that there wasn't any hidden food and that no one would, you know, sneak food into him. So, you know, he had he had like a cot and he had a, a chair and people could bring him reading material if it had been, you know, searched before. It got to the extent that if people were, you know, sort of reaching up and shaking a hand with him, they would inspect his hands to make sure that there wasn't, you know, food being passed to him, you know, being palmed off to him or something. So, yeah, it was it was just sitting there and talking with people for 40 days. Newspaper editors sent over teams of reporters to watch him for, you know, 24 hours a day. He also had his own sort of core of watchers drawn from medical students and other doctors and so on. But yeah, it was just sitting there doing nothing but not eating. And what was the significance of his show off with Dr. Hammond? Yeah, so Dr. Hammond, who was a former Surgeon General of the United States, he was part of the occasion that gave Tanner the reason to go to New York to fast. And that's that Dr. Hammond was extremely skeptical of a group of women who were called the fasting maids. These these were women who, usually actually girls more than women, but young women and girls who had claimed a fasting power. They would, they would claim that they could go months or in some cases even years without eating or with barely eating. And it was, you know, completely fraudulent. It was not, not a bit of it was true. And he had made it his mission to unmask these fasting maids. He'd even written a book, you know, doing his best to unmask them. But it happened that there was one in Brooklyn in 1879-1880 who had claimed to go, you know, I forget forever basically with hardly eating anything. He had challenged her, her name was Molly Fancher, to fast in public under the watchful eye of doctors around the clock and she said no, her she she you know her she she could not be examined by male doctors. Her feminine, you know, honor would have, would have been impugned and so on. That was the point at which Henry Tanner in Minneapolis, because all this was being reported in the newspapers around the country, Henry Tanner said, well, I'll come to New York and I will fast in her place. Mm, gotcha. Oh, and so, so I'm sorry, you asked, so what became of the standoff? Well, eventually, Hammond had to admit that people could, in fact, go longer than he had ever expected without food. He still, of course, rightly thought that the fasting maids were a crock, but he had to revamp and revisit his ideas about, you know, just how people could survive in the absence of calories. 
Yeah. And something I liked about that, like I called it like a show off was it sort of felt like an analogy for a theme throughout the history of fasting with, you know, conventional medicine and then people positing this other idea of fasting, because it seemed like you're talking about how Hammond was a very respected conventional doctor and Tanner was of a different, I don't know what the word would be like woo woo or alternative. (laughs) So it seems like that was a, a theme throughout, at least especially later in the fasting history. I think there were so many forces against fasting. Yeah, emphatically so. Uh, conventional doctors have always had a hard time accepting accepting fasting. And even today, it's the rare conventional doctor who who will look at the science. Yeah, yeah. Which, why do you think if you had to pick one, well, you don't have to pick one, but if you had to, <laughs> why do you think that is? Sure. No, that's a great question. That's one I've been wrestling with for about 15 years. But I think the, the biggest reason is simply this. Fasting is premised on the idea that the body can heal itself, right? If we get out of its way, it knows what to do. Now, it's not a cure-all. I'm not saying it's going to fix every single disease, but my goodness, it can reverse cardiovascular disease and arthritis and diabetes and even one form of cancer, at least. And, you know, I could go down a list of 50 diseases that we have good evidence that fasting, prolonged fasting in particular, can, can reverse. That is not something that doctors have been very good at hearing. Certainly, and I I make this case throughout history, there there was a period even in the early 19th century where the form of medicine that was most widely practiced by conventional doctors was called heroic medicine. And it was horrible. The, the whole premise of it was the doctor is going to be the hero. He's going to come in and save the day. And he's going to do this by bleeding the, the, the patient of, you know, liters of, of his blood, of making him vomit, of making her have diarrhea with a purgative, of blistering the skin and all this, that we're going to like just sort of whip the disease out of people. And it undoubtedly killed more people than it, than it helped. But, but that mentality, of course, that doesn't, you know, doctors aren't doing, you know, that badly today, (laughs) but they still have this mentality that disease is something that we have to conquer with technology, with our know-how, with our fancy, you know, medical degrees and all the stuff that we've learned in medical school and our residencies and so on. And letting that go and saying, you know what, if you just back off and monitor these people, make sure they stay healthy while they do their fasting, their bodies can actually do the healing without you. And it's that without you part that's very threatening to conventional doctors. And I'll just close this little sermon by saying, look, I've gotten a lot of benefit out of Western medicine. I think conventional medicine has a lot of amazing points to it, right? So I'm not trying to condemn all of conventional medicine. It has, you know, saved me more than once. However, this is an enormous oversight. And and I think that's where doctors fall down. I'm so glad you brought up the heroic medicine. I was saying in the beginning how I'd have moments where my jaw dropped open, hearing the things that people would go through with that. And I just kept asking myself, <laughs> I was like, why did people let these doctors do this to them? To that question, was it a cultural zeitgeist of just believing the system that these things were helping? Was it Ironically enough, the fact that because the body can heal itself, that if people survive the heroic medicine and then their body healed themselves, then they would just credit the heroic medicine. Like, how did this go on for so long? And relatively recently, if you think about it, like it wasn't that long ago that this was happening. 
relative to humanity. True. Some some iterations of this were continuing into the 20th century for sure. So yeah, so it's it's some of all of what you say. So yes, every time you, you know, tortured someone <laughs> who was sick and that person didn't die. Well, gosh, if you were the doctor, you could cr- claim that your heroic medicine saved them, right? And so, in, in the absence of, you know, the scientific method existed, but it was really rudimentary back then. And in the absence of any real science, it was just impossible for people to prove, you know, you could discount it, you could say, oh, I doubt that or something, but you couldn't prove that the heroic medicine had been more harmful than helpful. But I think the other piece of it that you you hit on as well is it is an extremely counterintuitive thing for people, all people, not just doctors, to accept that if we leave our body alone, it wants to heal itself. So you find these accounts when you go back and look through the history of medicine of doesn't matter where it is. It could be the U.S., it could be Germany, France, you know, Russia. You find these accounts from, you know, 100, 200, 500 years ago where a doctor writes something along the lines of, you know, it seems that if I leave my patients alone, some of them actually do better than when I give them the medicines. And that was emphatically true back then. The medicines of the day were almost all quackery unless by luck, they happened onto some herbal remedy of some kind. They seem to get better, but here's the problem. The, when, when a patient is sick, they call me to their bedside, and what they want is a cure. They want a pill. They want a potion. It's very much like today. They don't want to hear, you know what? Go home and don't eat for three days and see if that makes your fever better. It's it's an extremely hard thing for people to hear, and you can understand why. I mean, when you have all the science, it just seems ridiculous, like you want to just shake these people. But in the absence of the science, what people are left with are their own impressions. Well, what do we feel like when we don't eat? Well, we feel weak. We, we Our minds quite often slow down. We're, we're not able quite often to do the same amount of work as we did before. It's, you know, everything in our own experience tells us that not eating does not make us feel better, right? So I think, you know, when when a doctor comes along and says, try this, it, it's an extremely hard thing to accept on both sides of that picture, both for the, you know, skeptical doctors who doubt this remedy and for patients who are equally skeptical throughout history. Chronologically, it's hard, you know, prescribing fasting for all the reasons that you just mentioned. And then retroactively, if the person does heal, there were so many examples in the book where fasting won't even be credited. Like you talk about the woman at True North Health Clinic and her spontaneous remission. Like they wouldn't say it was the fasting that did it. It was just spontaneous remission. Or you talked about, I think, a study looking at or I don't know if it was a study, but it was something looking at keto versus fasting mimicking diet and fasting for epilepsy. And they didn't credit the fasting, they credit like the diet aspects. So even when fasting does work, it's like we can't give it the credit for what it did. But another thought that this made me think of was there were so many moments in the book where it was things I just took for granted that it had never occurred to me that people historically were not aware or saw things completely differently. So for example, the idea that like what we burn when we're fasting, could you talk a little bit about theories that people had about what we were 
running off of energy wise. Isn't that incredible? You know, we, we, we all know that we run on our fat, at least for most of the time, you know, we burn a little bit of protein and so on, but it's basically our fat, right? But no, people didn't know that even as late as Henry Tanner's day. So again, we're talking 1880, there were scientific journals about, you know, there were scientific studies of nutrition and body composition and things like this. People debated endlessly what he was surviving on. And so some of the theories were that the water that he was drinking had what were called animal kula, which was just these fancy word for just tiny, tiny organisms in his water, and that his body was surviving off of digesting those organisms. Other people believed that the the air contained, you know, nutrients, and the more people who were around, then the more nutrients were being, it's, in theory, the nutrients were expelled by people who were breathing them out of their bodies, and then other people could breathe them in, and if you weren't eating, you could be nourished by breathing in these nutrients. And there was one person who accused Henry Tanner of doing this fast in New York because there were millions of people there, so far more people breathing into the air, right? And, you know, other people would claim you know, of course, fasting has mostly throughout history been used for religious purposes. So people would claim, you know, divine assistance of some kind that was, you know, of course, the mechanism was never stated. But, you know, basically, you didn't need to eat because you were, your stomach was filled by the Holy Ghost or Jesus or, you know, whoever it was you were, you were crediting that to. So, yeah, it was quite a while, really, until the 20th century before people were, you know, science had settled the question of, you know, what do you, what do you burn when you're not eating? You burn your fat. I think one of the other ones was like women burning their menstrual cycle or living off of that. Oh, right. (laughs) Crazy. Do you think if we had had the obesity epidemic earlier, so if people were overweight, when people lose weight from fasting or calorie restriction today, like people can lose a lot of weight and you can clearly tell something left their body. So it seems more obvious that you burn something away. But do you think because people weren't, we didn't have, you know, obesity to the extent that we did today, it wasn't as noticeable that people were losing fat? Yeah, that's that's quite probable. Another another piece of it is in order to lose a whole bunch of fat, you have to fast for a very long time. And although fasting has been around for a very long time throughout most of history, most people when they fasted were fasting for only a few days. There were a few people who fasted, you know, weeks or months, but they were very very rare. So, you know, if you, even if you were obese, let's say you're, you know, my height, five, nine, you weighed 300 pounds, you fast for three days, you're not going to notice any fat loss, right? Like it's going to be very, very subtle. So I think that was a piece of it. And that also changed after Tanner's fast. Once people realized in the late 19th century, oh my gosh, you can fast 40 days and, and survive. Then you got people who were doctors who were occasionally fasting patients as long as, you know, 50, 60, 75 days. And then, of course, it would have been extremely noticeable at that point, you know, whether the person was overweight or not, that they were losing their fat. But that didn't happen throughout most of history. So that's probably a piece of it. And so you touched on this a little bit just now with the types of fast that people were doing. You touched on it in the beginning about what was or was not true. So something that really blew me away was I think... I think for most people, if they think about the history of fasting and what they think they know about it, there's just this idea, like like with the Greeks, for example, we think Hippocrates was all about, you know, let food be, be thy medicine and 
I guess we can question if he even said that. But there is this idea that, oh, the, you know, the old, the ancient people knew what they were doing and the Greeks were fasting and were the Greeks really fasting? <laughs> like, what was happening there? What, what What's the role of fraud in the history of fasting? Yeah. So, you know, when I first started fasting, I was greatly relieved to hear that fasting was this ancient practice. And, you know, we've all, you know, if you're into fasting, you've all seen these quotes. Supposedly, Plato had had written, I fast for greater physical and mental efficiency. Plutarch said, instead of medicine, fast a day. Hippocrates said, to eat when you're sick is to feed your sickness. You know, there are all these these quotations and stories out there. And it turned out on, on examining them, if one or two of which I had even, you know, related myself from what seemed like reliable sources when I first wrote about fasting a decade ago. When, when I dug deeper and really looked at the sources, turns out, no, <laughs> almost none of that. All, all those quotations I just said, all bogus, every one of them. It's crazy. Yeah. And, and they're, they're repeated. I mean, some of them were created sort of pretty recently within the last few decades. Some of them, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a story about Pythagoras who was said to have fasted, was made to fast before he became a student in Egypt for 40 days, didn't like it, but he did it, fell in love with it and made all of his students fast for 40 days as well before they started studying with him. Well, it turns out that's not true, but it wasn't something that was developed yesterday. That was developed by people who were trying to glorify Pythagoras and associate him through the 40-day fast with the 40-day fasting of Elijah and Moses and whoever else, right? So, anyway, the, these, these stories are told for various reasons, but the reason they persist today is because they are extremely comforting to people who are doing this weird thing that no one else until very recently, <laughs> no one else was doing. And so they, you know, they provide this kind of sense of, oh, you are part of this long, worthy tradition with these noble people who, you know, came up with mathematical theorems and so on. So it must be a good thing. In fact, the truth is, while it's true that we owe probably the, the first really deep signs anyway of therapeutic fasting to the ancient Greeks and to people around the time of Hippocrates, they had no idea what to do with it. And the reason they had, I mean, they had no idea what to do with just about anything to do with medicine. And the reason is, is because there was a taboo on dissecting bodies. So you couldn't look inside the body, you couldn't see what was going on, so they made up these cockamamie theories. And the one that eventually won out was called humoralism, and it held that if you, you know, keep your body's four humors in balance, those were black bile, yellow bile, phlegm, and blood, so they believed, if you kept them in balance, then you would be healthy when they got out of balance then, you know, you would be unhealthy. And that's why you get to such things as like bleeding people, is that's to try to get people back in, you know, their, their blood amount back in balance. Well, it was all completely nonsense, but all of medicine was based on that. So the few things that have come out about fasting from this time are, are just, you know, useless almost, almost all of them. So for instance, you know, uh, a writer in the, the hip, I should say, we don't know if Hippocrates wrote any of the works who, that are ascribed to him. There are about 60 works in the Hippocratic corpus. They were probably mostly written by family, disciples, whatever, some by imposters. But anyway, within the Hippocratic corpus, one of these Hippocratic writers, you know, will say something like, you should, when you, when you have hiccups or you have muscle spasms, you should either fast or overeat. And it's like, well, 
which one? Those are opposites. And it was full of this kind of nonsensical stuff. Now, all that being said, the Greeks did because they were, you know, open to fasting and because uh, th- their big contribution, the big contribution that Hippocrates and his his colleagues made was that previously medicine was just seen as something that happened by divine fate or something. They said, no, there are actual causes to diseases. We can learn to understand what those are, and sometimes we may be able to treat them. Now, the fact that their treatments ended up being wacky <laughs> doesn't discredit this enormous advance they gave us. And because of that advance, people over the centuries started experimenting with fasting. And eventually, they got around to, you know, just through random chance, practically, stumbling on some things that did seem to work here and there. They weren't very prominent. They didn't last super long. But you could see these sort of kind of bubbling up of fasting intelligence over the years. One of the reasons I went into kind of what what you're calling the sort of fasting fraud of these ancient quotations and stories and so on is because I just don't think that they're so widespread. They're everywhere. They're on virtually every health website. And anyone who talks about fasting, you, you know, usually resorts to one or two of them. And, and what you find is I don't think that helps us. What helps us is not sort of covering ancient fasting in, in, in a glory that it doesn't deserve, but actually understanding where fasting came from, being humble about which what things we did know and didn't know when as a species, and therefore treating fasting with a lot more care, I hope. Hi, friends. Do you want to come hang out with me and Dave Asprey and so many other guests I've had on the show? You simply must come to the 10th annual biohacking conference, May 30th through June 1st in Dallas, Texas. And of course, I have a massive discount code for you guys. I went last year to the one in Orlando and it was one of the most fun times of my entire life. I met and got to hang out with so many guests that I've had on the show. I met so many of you guys. And of course, there's lots of Danger Coffee and Dave Asprey approved meals and dry farm wines. And that's just the social aspect. The conference itself is mind-blowing. They have this incredible expo where they have all the biohacking supplements, all the biohacking things. You can learn about them, try samples, meet the creators and founders. If you haven't tried a lot of biohacking things, it's a great chance to actually try them out in person. Things like brain tap, infrared sauna, hyperbaric oxygen chambers, and so much more. There are so many incredible speakers as well. You can hear talks from people I've had on the show like Paul Saladino, Dr. Daniel Amen, Dr. Sarah Gottfried, Dr. Mercola, Dr. Annika Becca, and that is just a few of them. I seriously had the time of my life last year, and I would love to hang out with you guys. And you can get 35% off tickets. Just go to melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference and use the coupon code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. That's melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference with the code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. This code can be used for general admission or for VIP access. Seating is limited. They do sell out. They sold out last year. So get your ticket now. And if you come... Definitely let me know because I want to meet you. So hopefully see you guys in Dallas. MelanieAvalon.com slash biohacking conference with coupon code BC Melanie. Get your tickets now. I'll see you guys there. 
I feel like now I need to go through all my blogs and my book and my podcast. I'm sure I've, I'm sure I've been sharing some of this misinformation. This is just a random tangent. The thing you were saying about how the the cure for what was it for hiccups was either to fast or to overeat. I actually was reading a study about fasting the other day. I was researching fasting's effect on pain because of a listener question for the intermittent fasting podcast. And I found a really interesting study and it was all about how both fasting and eating can relieve pain. Super random tangent, but um, so maybe there was something with the hiccups. I don't know. Right. I mean, well, there could have been something there and had there been sort of, you know, more scientific way of, you know, parsing through the various evidence, something might have grown out of that, but they just didn't have that at the time. Yeah. So how, and you mentioned it in the book, but when we're looking at these quotes, how do we figure out that these sentences weren't uttered by these people? Yeah. So yeah, the first clue is if someone's not offering a citation, don't trust them. <laughs> they, they, they may well be right. Of course, not everything has citations. But the simple thing to do is to, you know, go and look to see, you know, who is making those quotations with citations and then just keep following them back. Like you'll find that, you know, I don't know that, you know, this, this quotation say, uh, let food be thy medicine and medicine be thy food from Hippocrates, which you see everywhere and no Hippocratic writer ever wrote that. What happens is if you start chasing it back, one article will cite another article, which will cite another article. And often this is in the scholarly literature, but no one will be citing an ancient Greek source. And once you get back, Back to the very earliest one of these that's, you know, maybe in 1910 or maybe it's in 1842 or whatever, and you found that on Google Books or some, somewhere like that. If you go as far back as you can and there's nothing more beyond that, <laughs> then you have to conclude that it's probably made up. And, you know, you can, you can check some of these by, you know, if you want, you know, emailing your favorite I don't know, Hippocrates scholar and saying, this quotation seems to be completely bogus. Are you familiar with this in any of the Hippocratic writings? And they'll usually be able to help you out and set you straight. Yeah, it's so interesting. And it, and it speaks to a broader problem of that just happening in general, I imagine, in the scientific literature. like Because all it takes is some idea to slip into some journal somewhere and then that's quoted and then that's quoted and then, you know, then we're lost with it. I know that happened with, like, I think with the the quote about how many topsoils generations we have left. I know there was something about that. Like somebody said a quote about that at some conference without a citation and then it made its way into some literature and then it just kept getting quoted. But I, I imagine it happens with a lot of things. Yeah. And it's, it's once it makes it into an academic publication, whether it's a peer-reviewed scientific journal or a book by an academic, forget it. Then everyone in the world will cite it and it's just a lost cause. Well, you mentioned 40 days a lot. And I think probably a lot of people, when they think of 40-day fast, they might think of Jesus's 40-day fasts. I was super fascinated by the history of fasting in different religions. So, okay, so to start, here's a quote people will say all the time. They'll say that fasting appears in every major religion. Does it appear in every major religion? It appears in almost every major religion. Now you could split hairs over what's a major religion, but yes, in virtually every major religion. The one exception is Zoroastrianism, 
which is in Persia, modern-day Iran. Zoroaster, the founder of Zoroastrianism, almost all religions experimented and some wildly adopted some form of asceticism, just being really savage to your body. And one form that was available to everyone was fasting. So every religion, practically every, certainly every major religion that has evolved has had to wrestle with what is the place for asceticism in our religion. And Zoroaster, after experimenting with it, eventually decided that it was extremely harmful. He thought that fasting in particular would leave you too weak to farm, too weak to create productive and strong offspring. And so he he chose a kind of more hedonistic almost view of the world and said, no, we're not going to fast. What's curious about this is that, you know, it's basically a, well, as I say, a slightly hedonistic religion telling people that this is not a sin and that is not a sin and you can do a bunch of things that these other religions won't. Well, today Zoroastrianism has 200,000 followers and that's it in the entire world. Meanwhile, you know, the, the religion it mostly lost out to is Islam, which in some forms is very strict about what you can and can't do. And there are a billion, you know, Muslims. So I don't know what the heck that says about, you know, human psychology. But that's a long way of saying that with the exception of Zoroastrianism, virtually all other religions, certainly the religions most of us have heard of, had some place for fasting, but it varied enormously. Some places, some religions, it was a very small role. In other religions, it practically took over the whole religion. Like in Hinduism, because I think that was one of the first religions you talked about, that was primarily for enlightenment, was the the purpose of fasting? Yeah, I mean, the idea was that if you could eliminate desire, all right, you could reach nirvana. So they would do all kinds of ascetic practices. They would deny themselves sleep, shelter, clothing, family. This is the first time you really get into really ascetic monks who are doing an almost athletic-like training for the soul. One of the ways was fasting. This idea that, you know, it was a way of renouncing desire, which Hinduism at that time certainly saw as a holy path. And so, you know, you can, early Hinduism is one place where fasting just grew and grew and grew, and you can see how it happens. If a little bit of fasting makes you holy, then a whole lot of fasting, right? Really holy. Exactly. And that's exactly what happens. So you eventually get to a point where there are Hindu calendars in ancient Hinduism that have 140 days of the year set aside for fasting. And the sad part of it is, eventually, the men who ran the religion decided that the people most in need of fasting were women. So the fasting burden fell very heavily on women, very lightly on men, and it took a a reaction many years later to sort of tamp that down. But even today, if you speak to Hindu families and say, who in your family fasts, you're much more likely to find women who fast than men do. And this is not an uncommon theme. This is exactly what happened in Christianity as well. No. So I think this was my favorite theme in the book. I was blown away by how often it occurred and what happened when it occurred. So even like with the Greeks, I think you said that when there was fasting, it was more with women. I don't know. That just never occurred to me. And then I don't remember which culture or time it was, but there was one example where women could fast because it was the one thing they could do. Like men would go on vagabond things and they could do all this other stuff, but the only thing women could do was like fast? Yeah, during during the Middle Ages. So fasting really took hold in Christianity, you know, 
probably 100, 200 years or so after the death of Jesus, who didn't have much at all to say about fasting, like most Jews who fasted him. He surely fasted. But he didn't have much to do with it. Early Christians didn't have much to do with it. But eventually, Christians decided that the the church fathers who ran Christianity at the time, that fasting could basically be used to subjugate women. The problem was, was that men were these, you know, very holy, devout creatures, but yeah, they were a little bit weak, right? And they were tempted by this, you know, temptress woman who, you know, God had just put down here to, you know, torment the male Christians was, was almost the view. And so, the idea was that you could neutralize female sexuality by getting women to fast. So, and, and, and sexuality was important because by this time in Christianity, the sort of sexual being had come to be seen as impure and tainting and so on. And fasting was supposed to dry up the moist humors. Remember the crazy humoralism we talked about earlier was predominating. Dry up the moist humors in women that were supposed to be behind female lust. And if you took fasting far enough, it could obliterate womanhood. womanhood. It could, you know, pair the hips, get rid of breasts and buttocks. It could end menstruation. And this wasn't supposed to be a punishment. So, so the church fathers said, anyway, this was supposed to be something to aim for, to make yourself more holy, and your reward would be becoming a bride of Christ. And this was quite literally meant. There are some of the creepiest erotic writings of late antiquity. It's so creepy. Isn't it? Are, are these, you know, scenes where Christ is uniting with his, you know, virgin brides in the heavenly bridal chamber or something. So, so this is, it, it, it's just obscene. And it's, it's not to say that every woman in Christianity, you know, fasted herself to this near starvation. But that was certainly the ideal that was held out. And so you find by the time you get to the Middle Ages and the Renaissance, the vast majority of saints who are women in, in the you know, Catholic hierarchy who have been sainted are these fasting saints. They, they have these very anorexic traits. Some of them literally starve themselves to death. Most of them just starve themselves into to illness and probably an early death because of it, though, of course, we can't say for sure. And so and that brings us to what you just referred to. Christians, devout Christians, were supposed to be, you know, practicing some form of asceticism. It didn't have to be as, you know, crazy as what the saints were doing and so on, but it needed to be something. Lots of forms were open to men. And one of the biggest ones of the day was called mendicancy, which is just going around homeless from town to town, begging, saying, you know, I'm a, I'm a monk, I'm a brother of Christ, you know, please give me food or whatever. And your penance was to have a, or not penance, but your, your sort of duty was to have a life with few possessions and to live on the, the goodness of others. When women tried that, there were a few who did. The most famous is known as Claire of Assisi. When she tried it, she was told, well, this, you know, homeless vagabonding is not in keeping with, you know, pure womanhood. So, get back into your abbey and forget this kind of thing. And so, what was open to her? What was open to her was the power over her own body. So, on the one hand, while it was a very misogynistic, very horrible set of doctrine that were being, you know, handed to, to girls and women throughout Europe of, of this time. On the other hand, some of them did this kind of reclaiming thing. Well, okay, if you're going to, all you're going to give me is the power over my own body, I'm going to use it to starve my way to, to heaven. They would basically think. So, so you have these, you know, 
That, that's, how, that's how you, one theory anyway, as to how you got so many of these fasting saints. There was just nothing else or very little else left over that they could do that would achieve for them the equivalent amount of holiness as the men were achieving through their asceticism. Yeah, that was such a crazy, ironic dichotomy that on the one hand, fasting was used to really oppress these women and repress their sexuality and control them. And then on the other hand, it was like the one thing the women could do to assert themselves. Like, it's so ironic. And my sister came over the other night and I was telling her about the book and about all of this. And I was telling her about, you know, these saints who actually were probably anorexic and, you know, died from that. And then we, they were canonized as saints. And I found the page in the book that you mentioned with those passages of the Bride of Christ stuff. And I was like, you have to read this. (laughs) It's just, it's fascinating. And so you can still see, you talk about Catherine of Siena, who is one of the probably anorexic saints that died. You can still see her body, like parts of her body places? Yeah. So, you know, there's this creepy thing in Catholicism where they have these in in churches and cathedrals, these reliquaries, and the relics that are in the reliquaries are often the body parts of saints. So, when a saint would die, sometimes it's a whole body, but, you know, people everywhere wanted a little bit of something. So, they might chop off a finger and send that to one town, chop off a foot and send that to another town. And so, anyway, her, her body is scattered around Italy. Catherine of Siena was perhaps the, well, no, no doubt about it, was the greatest, most powerful fasting saint. She had an, an influence over uh, the popes of the time. She had an influence over, you know, various princes and so on and, and their political dealings. You know, she helped propagate one of the crusades that was happening in her era. She died very early, almost certainly because she had weakened herself too much through too much fasting. So, she died in her early 30s. She died in Rome. She was from Siena and someone chopped off her head at some point and brought her head back to Siena. And if you go into the cathedral in Siena, you will see her head still there. You can Google it. It's online. And it's it's uh, shocking how well preserved it is, given that we're talking about something, kind of forget the dates, but six or seven centuries ago. But yes, it's this creepy thing that <laughs> is done in a lot of Catholic churches to take these various body parts. Do you think this theme, because I think we like to think that we're beyond this, but do you think this theme has kind of continued with like maybe not as much today with the health at every size movement or yeah, yeah, health at every size movement, but like Parisian fashion and, you know, runway models, is that kind of like a continuation of that theme? Yeah, you know, it's a very good question, Melanie, and I'm not sure. I I went into such detail about how fasting has been used to oppress women because food and how much you should and shouldn't eat is, of course, still being used to just ruin women's lives, even if it's in a much more secular way of, say, Paris Fashion Week than, you know, a a dictum from the Roman Catholic Church. I don't know. I never uh, found a scholarly article or a report or something that drew a very clear line and said, this is why we're having, you know, trouble today. But the parallels to what was going on in the past and what is going on today with women's bodies were strong enough that I just wanted to lay that out out there and you're astute to notice that, like, to ask whether there's a connection. And in the book, I don't say. And I don't say because I don't have an answer. So, possibly yes, possibly no. But 
regardless of whether there's a straight connection, I think we can learn from it. And it's not a super sophisticated message here. It's just that women have been screwed over by usually men telling them what the hell to do with their bodies. And I especially wanted to be sensitive to that because, you know, I tell you when I talk about, I mean, I've been talking about fasting with people for 15 years, hands down, the, the, the ones who resist it far more, the gender that resists it are, are women more than men. Well, it definitely has to do with some of these themes, whether it's directly linked to what happened in history, who knows. But I think we need to recognize that and understand it and be sympathetic to it. It's such a complex and complicated topic. And you're talking about women being resistant to fasting. I definitely see it, just especially with the intermittent fasting podcast and all the questions we get, because there are a lot of studies on the science of the health benefits of fasting, particularly in women, and particularly for hormonal issues, PCOS, you know, a lot of benefits that can be had. But there's also this a huge concern that, you know, women shouldn't be fasting. And it's hard to piece out how much of that is from themes we all just talked about, about societal issues of women and eating, or how much it's just that women might tend to over-restrict and, you know, be too restrictive in diet and lifestyle and fasting. And I don't know, it's just a very complex topic. And I hadn't really considered, that's another reason I love your book so much, I hadn't considered the history of fasting in women at all as a piece in it. So it's it's really interesting. Yeah, I would love it if someone could could come up with an answer to that question. Hopefully some scholar will turn to that someday. Another religion that was super interesting Jainism, what happens with fasting there and their suicide fasting? Yeah, it's it's really something. So Jainism probably took fasting to an even you know greater extreme than Christianity did. So Jainism, certainly at that time, the belief, Jainism, Hinduism, and Buddhism all kind of grew out of the same, they're called Vedic religions in ancient India. And they interpreted them different ways and often in reaction to each other. And partly because Hinduism, even as crazy as it was with fasting, and Buddhism, which was much more moderate with fasting, because they were both kind of on the slightly more moderate side than Jainism. Jainism reacted by taking fasting to quite an extreme, and they took a lot of dogma to extreme. And their, their main view is that life is either suffering or it's causing suffering. Even grass is alive. So if you walk across the grass, you're car- causing suffering. And the problem with that is that all organisms are composed of karma, which they've conceived of as these sort of literal bits, sort of like atoms. And your karma are mostly bad deeds. And they keep the soul from soaring to heaven. They literally weigh your soul down so that it can't soar to heaven. Fasting, they decided, burned off bad karma. So they would take fasting to some very extreme practices. One of them was this year-long thing that they called Varshatop, which, if I remember it correctly, you eat nothing from sunrise until sunset 36 hours later. Then you eat after sunset. And once you've done that, you start all over again at sunrise, fast another 36 hours till sunset, eat a little more, do it again at sunrise. You do this for an entire year, which is just insane. So they had all these practices, but the one that has gotten the most attention is this suicidal one you refer to that was called Salakana. And Salakana was simply starvation unto death. And the original idea was that if you were as enlightened as you could possibly be, 
you had nothing more to achieve in this life. You had burned off as much karma as you could. Well, what was the point in continuing to live? If you continued to live, you might just rack up some more bad karma. You might inflict suffering so you could starve yourself to death. Very, very devout Jains did this. We don't have an idea as to how many people, you know, did this over time. We're not talking millions here. We're talking, you know, probably, well, today we think that there are probably a couple hundred people a year who are doing this. Now, in the in modern times, it's been modified somewhat. So you don't have to be near enlightenment and so on if you have a terminal illness. You've got a terminal diagnosis. There's no hope for you. You can starve yourself to death rather than suffering. And there are cases in the West, of course, not just in Jainism, where people have done this. Not a ton, but a few who, you know, I speak of a, a writer, Sue Hubble, who in 2018 got a dementia diagnosis, and it was getting worse and worse and worse. And she essentially practiced salakana. She starved herself to death for about 34 days. And so, people report that this is not a completely painless death, but it is much more painless than many other ways to go, and that the pain is very manageable, and that all in all, it's kind of a peaceful death. So, who knows? I I, I don't have much else to say in favor of Jainism, but it seems like an interesting thing to consider for those who are terminally ill. Jainism, when I was reading about it, it literally, it sounds like the definition of you just can't win. Like, you just can't win if you're, <laughs> like, everything you do is, as you know, not good. How do you think that compares to somebody dying on their deathbed and then, you know, they stop eating and that's how they die? Like, that seems to be very common or more common. Yeah. So there's, you know, quite often in the last stages of death, if you have a, a cancer or something, then it's just one of these lingering things where you've been dying of the cancer for six months. Quite often in the last, you know, two days, three days, seven days, maybe you'll, you'll just lose your appetite. And that's your body shutting down and basically, you know, preparing for death as I have had it explained to me anyway. And I think that makes sense. You know, this is a different category of thing. This is, you know, you know, I have cancer. It's a terminal diagnosis. Diagnosis. I could linger for six months and deal with the pain, the medication, the whatever else, or I could starve myself to death and be dead in 30 days. Or in the, you know, Sue Hubble's case, she had dementia. Heck, she was only, I think in her 60s, she might have lived another 25 years. So, you know, the difference is it's consciously seizing the opportunity to shorten that period of what for a lot of people would be hell. Something I would love to know, I've never thought about this. I'd be super curious because we know of all of the processes that are activated by fasting and, you know, cellular renewal and all of the benefits. I wonder when a person is on their deathbed and then they do enter that state, you know, where they, their body is shutting down and they stop eating. I wonder if they still activate all those processes or if it's different. Yeah, that would be really interesting to know because the reason that most of us, well, many of us fast is because it initiates all these repair mechanisms. If your body kind of has some inkling, I assume, that it's going to die. Like nose. Right. <laughs> would it bother with the repairs? I, I have no idea. I don't think it's ever been studied anywhere. It would be a sad and a morbid study. I would be very curious, though. Another, just before we leave the, the religious aspect, because I think people, especially since Christian is such a large religion, they might have been surprised to hear that fasting, you know, wasn't as prominent or 
as big as a part as maybe we have thought it might have been, especially with like Jesus and the 40-day fast and everything. And you talk about how, I think when Jesus talks about fasting, he talks more about doing it in private rather than public. So like Lent, what's going on there? Yeah, so that's a really good question. What what happened was, you know, after Jesus, we, we have what we think is a pretty good record of what he probably said. But he didn't, you know, lay out an entire, you know, how to build an entire society and how, how to do everything. So, the, the church fathers had to come up with a lot of doctrine. And although the early church fathers sort of heeded Jesus, you know, Jesus had come and basically said, you know, all these silly, you know, dietary laws and everything else that the Jews are doing, well, you don't need to mess with that. Like, just do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And if you, you obey that golden rule, then the rest will fall into place. But just don't get bogged down with 3,000 laws. So, one of those things that people assumed that he was talking about was don't get bogged down with fasting. So, in the first century or so after his his death, there was not much fasting in Christianity. I mean, some of them had just, you know, they had been, many of them, most of them probably, Jews. Jews fasted, so they'd probably done some fasting and so on. But then what happened was, was that the church fathers found that they could make fasting into something extremely useful to them. I've discussed, you know, the the importance of subjugating women in order to keep them in their place and not tempt men. It wasn't all just that. I mean, that was a huge part of what was going on. But there was also, for instance, there there came to be an idea that evolved, uh, you know, a century or two after Jesus's death that was called the Bios Angelicos, the life of the angels. And the idea was that you should try to be on earth as much as you would be when you become an angel or a deceased, or, you know, whatever they thought they would be in heaven. And angels were obviously incorporeal. They didn't have bodies, so they didn't eat. So, to the extent that you were able to model that here on earth by not eating, by starving yourself, you could achieve this, this life of the angels here on earth, or as close to it as you could possibly get. So, for reasons like this, fasting took on a life of its own, and it just grew. There were you know, most people probably heard of the desert fathers and desert mothers, these these monks in antiquity who would go out into the desert and do all these kinds of ascetic feats. And one of their ascetic feats was to fast for days or weeks or months. And so fasting kind of gained a momentum of its own. And remember how I said before that in Hinduism, there were eventually as many as 140 days or something like that of fasting on Hindu calendars. And by on Christian calendars, it expanded so much that by the Middle Ages and Renaissance, some places in Europe had 220 or 240 days of fasting throughout the year. I mean, it was just overwhelming how it, how it you know, grew to this proportion. So, Lent grew from that sort of just same general expansion. It had eventually been, you know, Easter, Easter originally was the holiest day of the Christian calendar. It was also the saddest. It was occasion for mourning because Christ had been killed. He'd come down to, you know, save us. And then there was the joyous resurrection. So, it ended kind of joyfully, but it was a very mournful period. And people found that if you wanted to, the church fathers found, that if you wanted to emphasize to people just how mournful they should be, how sober and how contemplative that they should be, you should make them fast. So, Easter got preceded by, you know, depending upon where this was enacted, a day, maybe two days, eventually maybe three or four days or a week of fasting, which eventually over time 
because again, same thing as what we were talking about with the Hindus and the Jains, if a little fasting makes you holy, a lot of fasting makes you holier, right? So it eventually grew to this 40-day famine before Easter, and it was honored in different ways. Some people just, you know, sort of famously, as we know today, they just, you know, give up one thing. More commonly, it was or I should say, more commonly among the more devout, it was a it was a, a partial day of fasting each day. So you might fast until 3 p.m. in the afternoon, have a light meal, maybe a, a dinner, and then you do it all over again the next day. It wasn't 40 days without without food for for most people. So so that's how Lent grew. It was the way that fasting tended to grow throughout the more primitive parts of human history, which is just this simple idea of, well, gosh, maybe more fasting is even better for us. Those fasting days, like you mentioned in Lent, were those the type of fasting days, like in Hinduism, when they would have all those days on the calendar, were they complete fasts? Or were they like just eating lightly? Yeah. So for most of those, you know, when I say 220 or 240 days on some of these medieval European calendars, most people observe those by eating lightly. Some people would just observe them by giving up desserts or maybe they would give up meat. So it was a partial fast for most people. For the most devout people who really honored it, they tended to give up all food until mid-afternoon, and then they tended to eat lightly for the rest of the day. And one would assume they gorged the next the next you know, non-fasting day that, that, that they had in order to make up the calories, because otherwise they would have been in quite a caloric deficit. But that seems to be what happened. Little ADF action going on. <laughs> right, something like that. So I think when people think back through the history of Christianity, they think of the moment of challenging all of this dogma and doctrines would be with Martin Luther and the Reformation. So, did that affect fasting in any way? Yeah, I mean, absolutely it did. So, but it probably wasn't as big a deal with Martin Luther as people thought when he nailed his, well, he probably didn't, <laughs> another myth of history. Yeah, he, he didn't nail his theses to the door of the church. But when he when he published his, you know, theses, he, he, he was upset about fasting. At, at that time, what had happened was, at the same time that there was this one pole of fasting, which was this crazy, over-the-top, extreme fasting that led to the fasting saints and some of the stuff we've talked about, there was also this other pole in which people were trying, ordinary people, were trying desperately to get out of fasting any way they could because they hated it. So, you know, particularly if it's on the calendar a couple hundred days a year. So the church had eventually gotten around to letting the rich buy their way out of fasting by making donations to the church. These were called dispensations. And you could buy a dispensation to let you drink milk or, you know, eat butter or something, you know, during during your days where you were supposed to be fasting. There's there's even a one of the cathedrals in France has in Normandy has a butter tower. It's called the butter tower because this gorgeous Gothic Tower was built on the money from the dispensations for lay people to, you know, eat butter uh, during Lent and, and other fasting days. So Martin Luther didn't like all that, but he didn't make a huge deal out of it right there and then in his original protests. But he eventually became much more vocal as he was criticizing the, the Pope in Rome and, and other members of the hierarchy of the church. And he eventually, you know, went after them for these dispensations. Not only were they, you know, unfair to to people who couldn't afford them, but you know who 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 were the these humans in Rome to be you know selling off something that was supposedly God's right to tell us to do or not to do, 
And so from there in the Reformation, fasting played a pretty large role in getting people to revolt against the church because fasting was something that was hated. The church was corrupt. It had tons of money and rich people could get out of it. So you had a lot of very ordinary people who were very primed by fasting to revolt against the church, which eventually led to the establishment of all these Protestant churches in countries across Europe. Yeah, and one of the the themes I found so interesting is the backlash and the responses surrounding fasting and especially politically or even like with the government and things like that. And so in like in the US, there was quite a few interesting people. I was wondering if we could talk about Bernard McFadden. I was so fascinated by him and like what he did and this idea of the cult of the body beautiful and everything that happened with him. So how does he relate to the fasting world. Yeah, so Bernard McFadden stumbles onto the scene about 20 years after Henry Tanner's fast in 1880. McFadden was perhaps one of the greatest showmen in America. And I don't mean that literally. Well, he did do some shows on stage, but I mean just sort of as a as a carnival-like media figure. And he came along and in 1899 established a journal called Physical Culture, which by the time it was done with its first year, had 100,000 subscribers, which made it one of the biggest subscribed journals in the country and would just keep growing and growing. I think, I think the number between the two world wars was that it sold 50 million copies. And what Physical Culture was, was this body beautiful magazine and and you know it showed people who exercised their exercise wasn't huge back then and lifted weights which was even you know less huge and he would you know show them what they could make of their own bodies and that was its power it was like everyone has the power to be as beautiful and handsome as these models who not incidentally he showed wearing next to nothing sometimes wearing absolutely nothing, but, you know, with the genitals artfully concealed behind, you know, a literal fig leaf or something. And, and so he just, he, he, he gained this enormous, enormous following. He, he created one publication after another, and it was kind of the beginning of this confessional, first-person, lurid stories that played fast and loose with the truth form of journalism or so-called journalism. You know, some of his other publications were like true detective, true romance and stuff. And, you know, supposedly the stories were true, but of course they weren't. At at the height of his powers with all of his journals and he owned a newspaper or two, you know, he had a circulation of 200 million copies a year in, in, in a country that didn't have anywhere near the number of people who we have today, of course. So, but he was also, he made all kinds of fantastic health claims, like he had a way of regrowing, you know, bald heads, regrowing the hair on the heads. He had a, a way of, the one of the most famous was a thing that he called the penis scope which was this like glass tube and a vacuum pump. And it was supposed to, you know, give these middle-aged men with erectile dysfunctions, like firmer erections. I mean, just crazy quackery, you know, nonsense stuff, right? But in the midst of all this, he also put out some really useful information about fasting because he had discovered fasting when he was a child 
probably had heard about Tanner's fasts and so on, but he had noticed working on a farm that farm animals, when they got sick, stopped eating. So one time when he got pneumonia, he tried it and believed that it had helped him. So he did all of these very important things, but very poorly respected things because of who he was to promote fasting. So he he wrote books and there were articles in his magazines about fasting and he, you know, supported various fasting doctors and so on. It it didn't it didn't take because he was such a quack on so many other things that the medical establishment absolutely wanted nothing to do with him and he just, you know, blasted them left, right, and center in his publications, but it, you know, it it had so very little effect. What he did do, however, was to carry forward the, the, and, and not just carry forward, but expand on Henry Tanner's, you know, bringing of fasting to the public consciousness, because what McFadden did was he actually showed, you know, in, in, I'm not talking in any scientific way, but he, he would report cases of people who claimed to have been cured of their diseases by fasting. So people who had skin diseases, headache, constipation, kidney diseases, you know, on and on and on. It's a very long list. And this sparked the curiosity of a very small number of doctors and scientists and sort of more judicious reporters than, than he was who took fasting to the next step. But he's an enormously important transition figure. Hi, friends. An incredible fasting aid is coffee. Yes, I am all about the coffee. I am a huge fan of its health benefits as well as how it can support your fast and really help with energy and fat burning. And I have a big announcement. The brand of coffee that I have been drinking for an entire decade now, I am no longer drinking. There's some drama, there's some science, and I'm about to tell you how to get a discount on my new favorite coffee. So I've been drinking the coffee formerly known as Dave Asprey's Bulletproof Coffee for literally a decade. I do not drink it now, so this is not a Bulletproof Coffee commercial, but I started drinking it because I so trusted Dave and his obsession in creating mold-free coffee because moldy coffee beans is a huge problem and a lot of people can get health issues, brain fog, and crash after coffee because of the mold control. Contamination. Dave has been talking about this for so long, so I really trusted him and I would drink Bulletproof Coffee, which I absolutely loved and loved that it was mold-free. Then there was some drama. Dave sort of got kicked out of Bulletproof. He might be going back. There's a lot of stuff going on with that. Follow him on Instagram if you want to learn more about that. He even talked about it at the recent biohacking conference. But in any case, <laughs> drama aside, he can no longer speak to Bulletproof Coffee as to whether or not it is mold-free. And he ended up making a coffee even better than Bulletproof Coffee, and it is called Danger Coffee, and friends, I love it. It's the first coffee that is not only mold-free, but actually can help you remineralize. Yep, that's right. Danger Coffee contains a patent-pending formula that actually remineralizes your body with more than 50 trace minerals, nutrients, and electrolytes. On top of that, it is super clean. I know people like to see organic labels. Friends, I have learned so much about the certification industry. And honestly, the best of the best is finding people that you trust who do extensive testing and third-party certification. That's what I do with my Avalon X supplements. And that's what Dave does with Danger Coffee. So with Danger Coffee, they use a process that far exceeds government and industry standards. And it is third-party lab tested. So you can rest assured it is free of mold toxins. As for 
for the flavor, Dave selected these hand-picked farm-direct beans for their quality, their superb flavor, and their elevated performance. I love the taste of it. It's much richer and more nuanced than Bulletproof Coffee. It's honestly one of the best coffees I've ever tasted, and it's so exciting to know that when I'm drinking it, I'm actually helping to remineralize my body. So that's right. If you want your coffee to contain antioxidants, anti-inflammatories, micronutrients, and help optimize your fasting, you want Danger Coffee. And of course, I have a discount for you guys. You can go to melanieavalon.com slash dangercoffee and use the coupon code MELANIEAVALON to get 10% off. Again, that is melanieavalon.com slash dangercoffee with the coupon code MELANIEAVALON for 10% off. This is my favorite coffee. Like I said, it takes some really good coffee and convincing biohacking health reasons to break me from my 10-year decade bulletproof coffee habit. But sometimes you just got to upgrade. And by the way, this would make epic presents for people. This can just become your go-to present. Not only will people love it, but you'll be helping their health as well. Everybody wins. MelanieAvalon.com slash Danger Coffee with the coupon code Danger Coffee. So fascinating. It just makes you realize you just don't know what's going to have an effect. I'm blown away. You said 200 million copies a year? Yeah. And today there's only like 300 million, I think, citizens? Yeah, we've, we've got, I don't know, 330, 340 million people here. So yeah, I mean, yes, these were, these were, uh, you know, one person might be getting five of his journals, you know, so it's not like it was going to 200 million people, but you know, put it, you know, that, that figure was in 1929, right before the uh, Great Depression struck. And, you know, he sort of went downhill from there, but even as late as, oh, I forget what, what the year was, early 1950s, let's say, there was this famous show, TV show, where you had to guess a famous person based on just a sentence that they read or something like that. And it was, and I forget, I'm forgetting what the name of it was. It was really catchy. But anyway, you know, 30 years after his peak, 20 years at least, he could appear on this TV show without his face showing, just his voice reading one line or whatever it was, and people could guess who he was. He had that much influence over the culture. And he started his own religion? <laughs> he did. He started, it had to be one of the shortest lived religions in history. He started something called Cosmotarianism. And Cosmotarianism was just a blend of McFadden health doctrine and kind of some parts he had stolen from Christianity. I, it must have lasted, you know, six months or something. Speaking of Cosmo, I learned about, I guess, Cosmopolitan magazine used to be different than it is today. Indeed, it was a serious journal that talked about, you know, if, I don't know, gosh, the economy or the, the state of the French army or what have you. It was not a sex tips and blemish-free skin kind of journal. There's another theme there that I think we see today, not specifically fasting, but like even today, you just don't know what's going to take off, what's going to become popular, even with people who might have celebrity attached to them. You don't know if what they promote will be successful. So I was super interested to learn that like Upton Sinclair, for example, who most people have heard of and familiar with that he wrote about fasting. Yeah. And he was really the next, I think, most important person after McFadden. So Upton Sinclair is the, the famous muckraking journalist who, when he was in his late 20s, wrote a book called The Jungle. It was about the uh, atrocious treatment of workers in Chicago meatpacking plants and also about the completely unsanitary 
conditions there. But he had a much lesser known side to him, and, and that was that he wrote a book called The Fasting Cure, which grew out of a couple of long articles that he had written for Cosmopolitan magazine back in 1910 and 1911. And what Sinclair had a story about, like a lot of people who come to fasting, which is, I had all these illnesses, I couldn't shake them, I went to doctor after doctor after doctor. I mean, he spent gosh, I think translated into today's money, something like $500,000 on doctors and sanitariums and retreats and so on, trying to cure himself of what sounds like a really unshakable fatigue, constantly upset stomach, headaches that would strike him out of nowhere, and no one had any cure. Then he stumbles on some of this crazy stuff from Bernard McFadden, and he tries fasting. To make a long story short, it cures him. His All of his ailments go away. He is able to write more prolifically than ever. And he says, well, <laughs> I got to tell the world about this. I've got a platform, so let's get the news out. And so what he did that was very, very useful, and it, in addition to writing these two articles for Cosmopolitan, he, he also put out a, a survey, I think it was at the end of one article, and said, hey, if you have fasted, if you're reading this, would you please write and tell me whether you had a good response, bad response? Tell me, you know, if you were fasting to cure something, did you cure whatever it was? So he did the first really sort of systemic attempt. And, you know, he's a layperson. He's not a scientist. He's publishing in something that like ordinary people need to be able to read or his publisher will not sell it. <laughs> so, but he did a very, you know, as good as a, as a layperson could do, a very good job of assembling a whole bunch of case studies of people who said, yeah, you know, I had a stomach ulcer. I fasted for 35 days. It went away. Or yeah, I had, you know, thus and such wrong with my liver or this and such, you know, I had a carbuncle on my toe and after a fast of 20 days, it went away. And so what he was doing was he was saying, look, you don't have to take my word for it. He provided the names and addresses of these, or at least the cities that they lived in, which back then was good enough. He would provide information about these people and just say, I just want men of science, and they were almost all men back then, of course, I just want men of science to, you know, look at this seriously. It surely cannot be that we have all this evidence of all these people, you know, more than 100, 90% of them who said they got better when they fasted. It surely cannot be that we have all this evidence and scientists will not take a look at it particularly because at that time, medicine could not cure most diseases. It was really still a very impotent form of medicine back then. But of course, as you might have guessed, that did not happen. Scientists generally looked away. Most men of medicine looked away. That's something I found so interesting. You talked about how in the like when they really first started studying fasting for longevity, and it was a lot in rodent studies, I think probably in like the 1980s. But I think you made a comment about how there was all this really fascinating research on longevity and telomeres and, you know, shrinking organs and nuclei and stuff. But it took so long for people to apply that to humans, like to do human studies. Why do you think that is? 
Yeah, again, it just goes back to how counterintuitive fasting is. It is just very hard for people to accept that not eating can make you stronger, that it can can heal you. And, you know, if 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 we have it our, you know, sort of textbook ideal version of what a scientist or doctor is, is someone who's entirely dispassionate and doesn't have any biases and can, you know, look at things completely fresh every time, uh-uh, that's not what's going on. Doctors bring their biases, scientists bring their biases just like the rest of us. And boy, I mean, I'm telling you, it's still a hard sell today trying to convince doctors about this. In 1950, oh my gosh, even harder. To the point where I tell the story of this this one study that this pair of scientists, this odd couple of scientists at the University of Chicago does about that time. It's somewhere in the ballpark of 1950. I don't remember the exact year. And they find that when they fast rodents, they live vastly longer and they almost completely eliminate, I believe it was breast cancer was the, the one that they were looking at in these rodents. And they had various groups of rodents, and I'm saying rodents because I don't remember off the top of my head whether it's mice or, or rats, but they had various groups. And one they like, you know, fasted every other day, one they fasted, the other group they fasted, you know, every second day, and another group they fasted every third day, and then there was a contr- control group that ate normally. Well, the one that did the best was the one that fasted the most. All right. But it turns out that those those mice ended up being much smaller. They didn't grow to full size. Now, we now have the science to know that that's because our growth hormones and our growth mechanisms are intricately involved in our uh, in, in our longevity markers. And you can you can sort of, you know, grow more slowly and be smaller and live longer or you can, you know, grow fully and, you know, eat as much as you want and stimulate your growth hormones and and not live as long seems to be the message. But they didn't know that then. So what did they see? They saw, well, hey, look, fasting seems to be able, well, it certainly makes these guys live longer, almost practically eliminates one of the most dreaded forms of cancer. But guess what? There's a problem here. They don't grow to full size. And they could not reconcile that. They couldn't, they could not recommend to people, hey, we, we might have might have a cure for cancer here or something close to it. But you're, you're not going to be as huge and big and vigorous and so on as you might be. So they played down their own finding and, and played up one of the, you know, other lesser fasting groups who fasted less often and got fewer benefits and so on. Because you wouldn't be hale and hearty and strapping if you've, and I'm, you know, I'm like, I shoot, I would trade two inches for 20 years of life. <laughs> it's not even a question for me, but it's a very, very difficult thing for people to accept. Again, just another aspect of it being so very counterintuitive. It's also similar to this idea about the assumptions that they make on the findings and what people would want or are willing or not willing to do. Like you talk about the role of, you know, advances in epilepsy and the keto diet and fasting. And then this recurring theme where basically, I'm going to say they say, but they say that, you know, it's too hard to fast to address epilepsy. So it's not even presented as an option to patients or like, or to parents who have kids who are epileptic, they aren't even exposed to this thing that could possibly, you know, really help their children because it's just assumed it would be too difficult, which is very, I don't know. It's just, it's, it's frustrating. Yeah. And you can understand where it stems from. I mean, you know, 
you have doctors who have a very short amount of time with each patient, and they're supposed to tell them what exactly in their, you know, eight minutes of contact with the patient. Hey, guess what? Your diet is terrible. So you need to completely overhaul your entire diet if you want to live longer. So the few times that they try to do that, or, you know, you've got eight minutes with a smoker and you're trying to tell them how to quit smoking. Like that smoker has, you know, 25 years of smoking behind her and she is not going to hear what you have to say in eight minutes. So they get this impression that's not completely undeserved of, look, when we give some kind of advice, you know, not all advice, but when we give some advice, it is very hard to get people to follow it. So it's hard enough when it's like, you know, you could try eating less processed food, or you could try stopping smoking, which, you know, everyone agrees with. Gosh, if you're telling him something crazy, like, hey, how about fasting? <laughs> and I mean, what are the odds that they're going to be able to adopt it? And I think it is true that if you only have a few minutes with a patient, the odds are very, very slim. However, that's a problem of the medical model. It's not a problem with fasting and it's not a problem with patients because there are a lot, of, a lot of patients who, if you said in those seven minutes or whatever, hey, I think you should really try fasting. I don't have time to go into it all with you. Here's what I can tell you in five minutes. And here are some books and websites and so on that you can go and look at, podcasts you can listen to. And, you know, that might actually have some kind of effect. But most doctors aren't thinking that way. They're thinking very, very short term. Something I wish we could do, and there's an issue surrounding it because I don't know if it requires deception. Maybe it doesn't. I wish there could be a system where there could be a pill that's a placebo pill and it's a fasting pill and the directions for taking it is you take this pill, but you can't eat a certain amount of time before or after. So then you can give them the pill, but really you're just forcing them into a fast. Yeah, that's that's great. You have hit upon exactly what some of the United States is anyway, earliest fasting doctors came up with. In the early 19th century, one of the doctors I write about, Isaac Jennings, who was this doctor in Connecticut, noticed that people seemed to get better when they stopped eating and noticed that they did better than, you know, with the so-called medicines that that he was giving them, which were just almost completely useless. So he so he did that. He tried an experiment where he created bread pills. He just made pills himself out of flour and water, colored them to make them look like the pills that you would buy at the, the, the from the apothecary and so on, gave them to people and said, you know, your instruction is to take this pill, drink nothing but water, and I'll see you in three days. The results were convincing enough to him that he simply stopped prescribing medicines about 98% of the time and simply prescribed these placebos and then eventually felt bad about it and told his uh, his patients about it. And he thought for sure that they would run him out of town. So he had set up... But they did that, right? No, they didn't. They took it really well and he stayed there in Connecticut for another several years and then eventually went off and practiced in Ohio. But but yeah, like <laughs> it, it it seemed to have worked. How do you feel about Walter Longo and his approach to fasting and his choice to go the fasting mimicking diet route? I think a lot of it probably involves a lot of these reasons and forces at play as to, you know, what you can actually do and get funding for and prescribe to people and make actionable. Yeah, so I think, uh, so Walter Longo, who's a professor scientist at the University of Southern California, I think he's fantastic. He has done some outs outstanding work. I do have some criticisms, which I mentioned in, in the book. And, and, but I understand why he's gone the way he's gone. So, you know, what, what he, 
his big breakthrough, he's, he's had a lot of big breakthroughs. You know, there are people who are pushing him for a Nobel Prize, and he would certainly have my vote if I were on the committee. But one of his big breakthroughs was in fasting for cancer treatment. And he had this terrible experience. So what he basically found is the fasting can weaken cancer cells, and it can protect healthy cells. So it weakens the cancer by starving it out of of its preferred fuel, glucose, and shutting down the growth factors that cancer hijacks to spread and divide, and increasing the immune cell activity of these cells that go around and zap our cancer cells. Meanwhile, the healthy cells sort of bunker down. They go into a protect and repair mode. So when you give chemo or radiation, the fasted, and you fast people during that, the healthy cells either ignore it, or if they get dinged up a little bit, they're great at making repairs. So in human trials, he found that people had less nausea, less vomiting, less headache, less fatigue if they fasted during their chemotherapy. We know that's for sure in humans. And then in mice, what he has seen is that the cancer cells that are weakened, more of them are killed by the chemo or the radiation, so more of it dies. And because the healthy cells are protected, you can ratchet up the chemo and the radiation, you can kill more of the cancer. And there are human trials going on now to see if that that part of, you know, killing more cancer is also true in humans. We know that the protecting you from chemo side effects is true in humans. Okay, so I go into all that to say, that's amazing, right? He has found a way to make chemotherapy less miserable and to make it more potent. So he takes his findings, which at that point had been in mice, to oncologists at, you know, these various hospitals that participate in research studies all over the country and says, hey, would you enroll your patients in my fasting trial? Here's what I got. It seems extremely promising. And, you know, it should have taken him about two years to get all the people do the trial, you know, get the data written up and all that. It took him like five years. And the main reason was because oncologists said no. (laughs) Many of them just wouldn't take calls from his lab because they thought this was just sheer quackery. They didn't want their patients fasting because patients lose weight on chemotherapy. And so they were afraid that they were going to get too skinny. Okay, that makes total sense. What Longo told them was like, look, in my mice and in you know these human anecdotes that we have, people actually don't lose much weight because they're not as nauseated from the chemo, but even the ones who lose weight, they gain it right back in like two or three days when they refeed. It's not, this is not a problem. But oncologists could not hear it. And so Longo decides, ah, crap, (laughs) fasting is just a dead end. I'm not going to spend my whole career beating my head against the wall. I'm going to instead try to see if we can come up with a diet that mimics fasting. I'm sure you've discussed this on your podcast more than once, but so his fasting mimicking diet, he actually came up with two, uh, one for kind of more healthy people to use and one for chemo patients to use. Oncologists have, in fact, proven much more willing to use that. And for that matter, for the you know healthier people who don't have cancer, but maybe they have prediabetes or high blood pressure or whatever, other doctors have been very excited to do that. You know, they say, oh, oh, so we can give our patient a little bit of food and still get most of the benefits of fasting. Probably not all of them, but most of the benefits. Great. So that's really good. I think that's fantastic. Here's the problem. My problem is, is that in a world where science weren't controlled by what you can sell and instead was controlled by what's best for the patient, we would have trials that put the fasting mimicking diet head to head against water only fasting, right? And we would see which one does best. And then 
people could have a choice. You know, look, not everyone wants to fast, even when threatened with death from cancer. But if if you knew, let's just speculate here, that if you did the fasting mimicking diet during your chemo for your cancer, your odds of survival, you know, jumped from, you know, three years to, you know, 15 years. But if you did water-only fasting, they jumped from three years to 25 years. Well, you could make an educated choice about what you wanted to do. Unfortunately, no one's going to pay for a randomized controlled trial to compare fasting with a fasting mimicking diet because you just can't make much money off of fasting. Fasting mimicking diet is something you can sell. They go for about 200 bucks or so for a a five-day package. It's not like a ton of money, but that's money that like people, investors can invest in. And so we're getting trials on the fasting mimicking diet, which are great, but they're not being compared for the most part, maybe at all, to fasting, which I think is, is a real shame. I would hypothesize if they suspected that the fasting mimicking diet would outperform fasting, that they might. Yeah, I mean, a- absolutely. What, what is their what is their incentive to, to prove that there might be something better out there than the FMD, right? Yeah. Have you done Prolon? I have not. I've been curious about it, but I, I have never done it. I ordered it. I was going to do it. It was a no-go for me. When I'm just doing water fasting, like not eating, like I'm good. But like having to eat like a tiny, small amount of food, it just makes me ravenous. So I think I tried like one day. I was like, nope. (laughs) Yeah, people people tell me that you get used to it. But yeah, I have wondered the same thing as to, you know, what it does for your hunger. It doesn't doesn't seem likely to to be great. On the other hand, yeah, it's only four or five days. Have you watched, was it Gwyneth Paltrow's Goop Lab? on Netflix. I have not watched it. She has an episode. One episode is with Dr. Walter Longo and she does Prolon. And then one episode, was it the same episode? I think she also interviews Dr. Alan Goldhammer, I think. So like fasting clinics today, what was your experience at True North Health Center like? Yeah. So True North in Santa Rosa, California, which is about an hour north of San Francisco, is America's oldest and largest fasting clinic. There are only like, you know, three in the entire country and the other two are, you know, just, you know, kind of sole practitioners or in one case, a husband and wife team who see, you know, a handful of patients a year. At True North, you know, they've got like 70 rooms. They're seeing 1,500 people, you know, inpatient who are coming there to fast or to eat a vastly reduced diet all year long. So they have an enormous amount of experience. I I will say as positive and glowing things about Alan Goldhammer, (laughs) as I said about Walter Longo, he has been a pioneer. He, for the longest time, was the only place you could fast under medical supervision in the United States. He kept fasting alive in this country when, you know, at a time when it probably should have died, but, but for his persistence. And, and, and best of all is that unlike previous fasting doctors, Herbert Shelton, who did an awful lot of good, a fasting doctor of the 20th century, the most prominent American fasting doctor until Goldhammer, Shelton was not very scientific and didn't have much interest in having anything to do with science because science had so strongly, researchers had so strongly rejected everything that he, you know, practiced and preached. So what Alan Goldhammer said, however, was very early on in his career, he's been fasting people since 1984. I think he's 62 or three now. 
He said, look, if fasting is ever to achieve widespread acceptance, we have to put it on a scientific basis. And so from very early on, he was collecting data from his patients about how they improved on fasting. And he eventually, probably about 15 years ago or so, founded a foundation to undertake research on fasting. And what he'll tell you is, you know, if you you go to True North, he'll say, this looks like a fasting clinic, but in fact, what we are is a research center disguised as a fasting clinic. And he keeps the rates there extremely low so that he can get people who will come and fast long enough to get well. And he has, for the last 20 years, been publishing little by little, little more each year, these scientific studies that document and validate some of the uh, reversals of disease that he and his staff have achieved through fasting. Doesn't he have the largest documented drop in blood pressure? Yeah, that's truly the if, if you if you want both a very heartening and very sad, you know, snapshot of fasting and science today, it's that. So yeah, his first study was one that he co-wrote with T. Colin Campbell, who's the author of the China study, a, a very respected Cornell biochemist, nutritional biochemist. What they what they found in Goldhammer's data, so what they did was they took, I believe it was 174 consecutive patients. There was no cherry picking. Every patient who walked in the door at True North who had high blood pressure and fasted was enrolled in this study. And what they found was every single one of those people on high blood pressure, their blood pressure dropped remarkably. All of them were able to go off their high blood pressure medication if they were on it. And those who had the worst high blood pressure did the best. Uh, Those in stage three hypertension had a drop of 60 points in their systolic pressure. That's the top number, six zero. Overall, among all their patients with high blood pressure, the average drop was 37 over 13 points which, as you say, is the largest drop ever reported for any therapy in the peer-reviewed scientific literature. You know, an anti-hypertension pill, doctors are happy, you get a 10-point drop. So these drops of, on average, 37 points, that's just completely off the charts. The need for this is dire because we have, gosh, what is it? I think it's 500,000 Americans every year are going to die of at least high blood pressure being one of the contributing causes to their death, and sometimes the cause outright. Half of all Americans get high blood pressure, American adults, and I think it's like three quarters of us by the time we're in our 70s. And the American Heart Association says still to this day that there's no cure. Yet we have studies going back more than 20 years showing that in fact, you can you can completely reverse high blood pressure. And one of the great contributions of Alan Goldhammer was, so scientists have known sort of casually for about the last, oh, I don't know, 80 or 90, maybe 100 years, that you could reverse high blood pressure when you fast. However, when people go back to eating, their high blood pressure always went back up. So it was kind of thought of as a party trick or something. But what Goldhammer did was what uh, a bunch of other fasting doctors did, which was just to ask the simple question, well, if the, if the disease goes away when we take the food away, was there maybe something in the food that was contributing to the disease? And like so many other doctors, fasting doctors throughout history, you know, he read the science and experimented with what kept his, you know, patients' diseases away. And he settled on a, a 
practically unprocessed, certainly minimally processed, vegan diet. It's, it's so unprocessed, he doesn't even use added oil, salt, or sugar. But by doing this, he did something that no previous doctor had ever achieved, which was keeping his patient's high blood pressure away when they went back to eating. So, so we have what seems to be a cure for high blood pressure. There have been multiple follow-up studies that Goldhammer has done. The most recent one was done with a researcher at the Mayo Clinic. So, you know, and it was published in a fairly, you know, well-recognized and prestigious journal. The catch is these studies are, are, are not randomized controlled trials. Now, I, you could conduct a randomized controlled trial. I don't think you'd find anything different. I think you'd find the exact same thing. There's almost nothing in these studies that suggests that these are anything other than legitimate findings. But you can't be 100% certain with something like this unless you do an RCT. The problem is these, those are extremely expensive to conduct. And so True North hasn't conducted any randomized controlled trials because they can't afford them. The government's not giving money to people like True North to do fasting research. And of course, who else is funding it? Big pharma, big medical device companies, so on. They're not putting forward any money from, for fasting because they can't make any money off it. So sadly, although this cure possible, probable, I would say, cure is out there and known in the scientific literature, it's been almost universally ignored. Hi, friends. Okay, so I'm a little bit embarrassed because I've been talking for so long about red light and near-infrared therapy, which is so, so important. However, I kind of left out something really important about light. So as you guys know, I've been talking about red light and near-infrared for so long. And at the same time, during the day, I was using a bright, sad light. So it's those white lights that help with waking you up, help with your circadian rhythm. They're used to combat mood issues and depression. So I have a really bright white one of those at my desk. A few things about that. I knew it helped wake me up and kept me stimulated, but I wasn't sure if it had any detrimental effects using it. And then two, I was also wondering if by just focusing on red and near-infrared light, was I somehow missing something in the full spectrum of light? Guess what? I was. And guess what? I found the solution. And guess what? I have a discount for you guys. So the founder of a company called Soulshine reached out to me and he was like, do you know about the importance of full spectrum light? And I was like, you know what? I've been wondering about this for quite a while. Please educate me. Oh my goodness. This man blew my mind. I talk a lot about the problems of blue light. That said, we evolved in natural full spectrum sunlight that our genes are programmed to respond to. And today we do not spend enough time in that light. A lot of us don't go outside and we're overexposed to blue light. It's a problem. And then to make things even more problematic, the common sad lights that I was talking about that are bright white, they actually do not contain the full spectrum light. They filter out certain wavelengths and they're high in blue light. So just like I thought, it was not doing my health many services. There is only one company I have found, or I guess that found me, that makes a full spectrum white light device. So the Soul Light Systems include the fullest spectrum of visible and invisible near-infrared light with traces of UV light. Yep, that's right, because you need all of that as well. Don't worry, it's not an exuberant amount that's going to cause a problem. It's just a tiny little dose that your body actually needs. You can use these lights to fix your circadian rhythm and properly stimulate your brain's suprachiasmatic nucleus, or SCN, in a way that it was supposed to be stimulated. It's kind of like the natural spectral diet. Because yes, you may be suffering from malillumination. Did you know that your entire bloodstream 
actually filters through your eyes in a relatively short amount of time, that's the only way your blood is exposed to the outside world. So when we expose our eyes to this light, it actually can have beneficial effects on our blood. That is crazy. It helps with skin, with mood. This is the light that I wasn't thinking about that we need. I love Soulshine's light therapy devices. I do use it in combination with my red and near infrared light devices as well so that I can fully bathe my body in the best light that is so helpful for my sleep, for my stress, for my metabolism, for my immunity, for my health, so many things. They have so many different device options. They have one that I love that kind of looks like a juve and I sit it on my desk and it has options for the full spectrum light, which is that bright white light, as well as an ear infrared option. So what I do is I do a session of the full spectrum light in the morning and then I run the near infrared to help counteract the negative blue light around me. They also have stands with bulbs that you can get. I've been using some of those on my plants. I am just so grateful that Ken at Soulshine found me because I was missing out on such a key aspect of light and I had no idea. And you can get 10% off at melanieavalon.com slash soulshine. That's S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E with the code melanieavalon. So melanieavalon.com slash soulshine, S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E with the code melanieavalon for 10% off. It's really helped my mood, my energy, my sleep, so many things. I think you guys will love it. So again, go to melanieavalon.com slash soulshine, S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E and use the coupon code melanieavalon to get 10% off site-wide. And we'll put all this information in the show notes. It's crazy because not only is it ignored and there's all these forces keeping it from being studied and happening. On top of that, you talk about the issues he's encountered, which, you know, people trying to shut him down and the authorities. And and that happened a lot historically with a lot of these different people. So it's just, it's very interesting. How was your experience? How long did you go there for? Yeah, my wife and I in, I believe it was June of 2021, we went there for two weeks. So when you fast at a fasting clinic, they typically will fast you for however many number of days, and then you need to stay there while you refeed, because your refeeding needs to be carefully calibrated and supervised. You stay there half the number of days you fasted. So, uh, you know, I think we fasted nine and a half days and uh, refed for four and a half days. Yeah, speaking of that, I love how you hacked the German clinic situation by, didn't you fast before so that you could get a longer fast there. Yeah. So, you know, I, I went there in part because I was having some struggles, health struggles that I, you know, hope to correct. And what almost all fasting doctors have found, you know, for the last, let's say 200 years is that longer fasts tend to be better than you know, a series of shorter fasts. However, if you don't have the time or you don't have the money, because some of these places can be quite expensive, they say, you know, well, the next best thing would be to do a shorter fast. So actually before both of those, before I went to True North and before I, I went to the Buchinger Wilhelmi Clinic in Germany, I fasted for, I think it was maybe five days or so on my own, water only, and then, you know, refed for a week or something, and then went to the clinic and fasted there for nine or 10 days. Just speaking of, listeners are going to have to get your book and hear your experience at particularly that German clinic and like with the enemas and colonics and (laughs) things like that. It's really funny. It's really funny. You tell the story really well, your experience there. So, wow. (laughs) Well, this has been so amazing. For listeners, we only barely touched on everything that is in this book. There's so, so much more. So I will just direct them 
to the book, you know, things like we didn't even talk about, you know, circadian rhythm and a lot of the studies today and things like that. So listeners definitely have to check it out. The artwork on the book, why did you choose the leaf? Yeah, so I didn't choose it, but I did I did approve it. It was something that the graphic designer came up with. But the reason that it was chosen and the reason that I like it is it, it's, you know, symbolic of fasting. So it's, it's a leaf for, for people who haven't seen the cover. It's a leaf that has it's a fall leaf. It's changing colors. So, you know, you, you have in this fasting, right, some sort of symbolic kind of almost like dying, right? <laughs> where, where we're not eating, we're not getting nourishment. Our body is, you know, bunkering down in a way that's not you know, part of our normal, you know, go-getter active kind of life. But from this comes a, a rebirth. And so we, we don't have the whole tree here and we're not seeing that eventually it's going to grow new leaves having shed this old leaf. But uh, I think that's why the artist chose it and certainly why I like it. Oh, I love it. I knew there was something behind it. And it's a beautiful book, by the way. I have it right here in front of me. I think they did a very nice job with the design. Yeah, it's amazing and very substantial. (laughs) Listeners have not figured that out by now. So maybe one last question about everything. So this book and this work was, you know, the history of fasting up until now. What do you think the future of fasting will look like? You know, that's a, a really good question. And I'm not sure. One of the biggest discoveries to me, see, see, I got really and in, you know deeply interested in fasting i mentioned coming to fasting to to lose weight and so on but i've stuck with fasting and i'm i'm most interested in it because of its ability to heal its ability to reverse diseases that we do have and prevent diseases that we don't yet have and what i have found in the couple of months since the book has been out and talking with people is most people just aren't interested in that, which really surprises me. Most people are, I either, you know, the, the two biggest reasons I get are one, I want to lose weight, which is great. Nothing wrong if you have excess weight, like you will be healthier and less disease prone. If you do not have excess weight, we know that. But on the other hand, yeah, and, and the other thing that, that, people tell me is, I want to fast in order to be kind of more efficient. I want to be able to be whatever, a better CEO or a better capitalist in some way so I can go out and crush my opposition or something. Um, but, and, and you know, fasting can make you more efficient. It can make the mind in some cases work better and so on. So I, I'm not to, it's not to diminish any, either of those reasons terribly. But when I try to tell people, well, you know, are you interested in, you know, maybe not getting cancer or something, the interest level drops quite a bit. And, and going into all this, because I sort of assumed that where, because where the research is going is for this longer term health. The research is heading in the direction of more disease prevention and more disease reversal. And so that is, I think, almost certainly where the science is going. It's looking at how can we use fasting to stay healthier, not just lose weight or be mentally tougher or whatever it is. However, that's not where I'm, I, at least so far, am finding that a lot of the, the public are. And I'm talking about people who are interested in fasting and are, are perhaps fasting themselves. So this disjunction between, you know, where the science is and where sort of the public mood is, it will be curious to see how that plays out. I kind of hope that the science, well, I definitely hope that the science sort of pulls more people along and more people learn that, like, look, fasting is a, a long-term health-giving thing and can add years to our life if we do it right. But whether that will happen, who knows? I mean, it kind of speaks to human nature. I think as humans, we focus on what we can experience now. So that would be, you know, lose the weight, 
feel the productivity, but we're not so good at like long-term <laughs> looking at the long-term benefits. Absolutely. Like we are, we are very short-term thinkers, it would seem. But you know, what, what surprised me is, you know, as I say, I got into it for the losing weight thing. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think it's fantastic if you have some extra weight you want to shed and so on. But what surprises me is that once you're in it for that, that then trying to say, hey, so now that you've done it and seen that it's doable, doing this somewhat periodically, whether daily intermittent fasting or whether prolonged multi-day fasting, it could help you. Yeah, I've yet to see an overwhelming interest in that. And, you know, maybe my book will be a small nudge for some people in that direction. I mean, longevity science is what I'm obsessed with. And I would say I do fasting for the longevity benefits primarily, but it even for me comes back to now. Like I think I do it now because I want to feel younger now. Like I think it makes me, the focus is always on the present, I think. So yeah, it's just, it's really interesting. So how do you practice fasting now? Do you do it daily? So yeah. So, you know, they're basically speaking two types of fasting. There's the prolonged multi-day fasting, which is mostly what we've talked about. And I do a fast of about one week, twice a year. But I think the most important one is actually the daily fasting. And I do do that. And it was not something that I did before doing the research on this book, but I, I became extremely interested in it. And, you know, we, we're probably running out of time here, but I'll just, I'll just tease the, your listeners with the surprising thing that the research has found, okay, is, is about daily fasting. And I mean, just in the last like three, four years, this is really new stuff. One piece of it is not news at all. It's that if we eat in a shorter window each day and we fast for longer each night, we increase the amount of repairs. A lot of people know this. That's why you have these 16, 8, you know, eating patterns and so on where you're eating in an eight-hour window and you're fasting for 16 hours a night or whatever. That's great. What a lot of people don't know is they tend to usually do that by skipping breakfast and then they put all their food in the morning and the evening, excuse me, in the afternoon and the evening. It turns out that our circadian rhythms have just hardwired us and there is virtually nothing, it seems, that we can do to change this. We process nutrients far better and we end up being far healthier if our window is in the morning, if our eating window starts an hour or two after we wake up. So for a lot of people where the science is pointed is, it seems like the healthiest eating window out there is probably from like, let's say 8 a.m. or so to 2 p.m. And and the, the thing that I always hasten to add after that, because that completely freaks people out. I mean, I hated hearing it. I, I was a late night eater. I was a breakfast skipper before working on this book. I just thought this was the worst, worst news in the world that I had come across. I've actually found that it's just really not at all difficult for me to do. I have more energy. I would, I would not go back to eating the way that I did before now that I'm eating on one of these like sort of eight to two, nine to three eating windows every day. But there is a compromise for people who still want to eat dinner. It seems the science seems to be pointing to the fact that if you put most of your calories in the day in that early window, so that means a bigger breakfast, bigger lunch, and then keep dinner light and early, you can probably get most of the same benefits as someone who's eating just entirely within that window. So it turns out that the the adage that was coined in the last century to eat breakfast like a king, lunch like a prince, and dinner like a pauper actually turns out to be pretty good advice. There's a whole chapter on why the, you know, how the science, you know, 
came to this and, and you know, hopefully uh, I've presented it in a convincing way because I think it's very good science. It's very convincing. It is extremely counterintuitive, but that could be contributing to a lot of our bad health. The fact that we, so many of us, are eating late and eating big late. I was really excited to read that chapter, especially because I am haunted by this question. Well, first of all, just my own biases. I gravitate towards eating late at night as like a person. Historically, I always have been. And then I get so many questions from listeners all the time about this, about early versus late eating. And so a few months ago, I was longer than that. I was like, I'm going to try to just read everything I can read and be as unbiased as I can and see what I think it shows about early versus late night eating. I thought it was going to be hands down early eating was the way to go. What I felt looking at everything, and I mean, we could talk about this for hours and there's so many studies, but I felt like it from what I saw that probably late afternoon to early evening might be the most beneficial window just hormonally looking at like the hormonal profiles. But some of my concerns or my um, things I'm curious about is the role of bias in breakfast eating studies and then the healthy user bias that we've been told for so long that eating breakfast is healthy. It's hard to separate that. So the people who eat breakfast are probably more often doing healthy lifestyle habits And then a third piece was the lack. I wish there were more studies directly comparing because there aren't many. Like I tried to find as many as I could, but there aren't that many that directly compare like an early window to an evening window, both completely fasted and and a short window. Yeah, I I, I agree with you. There's there's definitely a shortage of studies out there. And you're right, breakfast skippers, and you know, I I was a breakfast skipper for 50 years, so I'm lumping myself in this category, but breakfast skippers tend to be less healthy. I mean, I'm not talking necessarily about people like you and me, Melanie, but I'm talking about, you know, alcoholics will skip breakfast because they're sleeping through breakfast. Smokers will skip breakfast because, you know, the cigarette suppresses their appetite. People who are overweight and obese and therefore less healthy by definition are often skipping breakfast because they're trying to, to lose weight and some of them binge later in the day. And that, that's all to say there are all these confounding factors that scientists try to control for, but there aren't, there, there's no perfect study out there that, you know, controls for all those perfectly and ends up with the conclusion, yeah, breakfast skipping is unhealthy. But I, you know, I try to present what, what I feel is the preponderance of the evidence that is saying basically breakfast skipping is unhealthy, and with enough detail that the you know reader can make up her mind about that herself. The one thing that I would say is I don't know a single researcher <laughs> who has looked at these early time restricted feeding windows. Right, so you're eating whatever, from 8 a.m. to 2 p.m. rather than eating from noon to 6 p.m. or 4 p.m. to 10 p.m. or whatever it is. I don't know a single person researching the field who wanted to find the answer, oh yeah, dinner's bad for you. (laughs) So the fact that they have consistently found this answer, and you know, there aren't like a thousand studies on here, we're talking a dozen or something, that they've consistently found this with, you're right, there haven't been perfect head-to-heads on all of these, but I think the balance of the evidence has has really shifted. And if you if you go to my website, which is stevehendricks.org, there's a frequently asked questions page. And I, I focus in that chapter on one really, really very well done study by a 
uh, a researcher at the University of Alabama, Birmingham named Courtney Peterson. And a question that I've gotten since then is, do you have anything other than just Peterson's study or studies? Or are you just relying on her, you know, two, three studies that you talk about in the, in the book? At the time that I wrote about it, I didn't feel that there was a lot of fantastic science out there that was as good as hers that, you know, merited taking up the space. But on my website, on that Frequently Asked Question page, I discussed three or four other studies. Most of them have taken place in China. They seem to me anyway to be very well conducted and very well controlled. And they do do some head-to-head stuff. They're they're going, you know, if we have someone eating from, let's say, 7 a.m. to, you know, 3 p.m. or something, and then we have another group of people eating from noon to 8 p.m., who does better? And they're tracking, you know, longevity biomarkers and they're tracking disease biomarkers, everything you would expect, cholesterol and blood sugar and things like that. And it's just, to me anyway, it just reads really overwhelmingly in favor of these these morning uh, eating windows. But having said that, you know, the science is still young. Who knows what we'll find? What does seem more and more clear, though, is when they when they compare to really late eating windows, like the one meal a day just being dinner, so you're eating, you know, from let's say six to eight p.m. or something. Those really seem not to pan out on a great many of the longevity markers. So you might look into some of those and see see what you think. Shoot me an email. Tell me if you agree or disagree. <laughs> Just some brief comments. One, I think you did a really excellent job of, like you said, like laying out all of these different studies and acknowledging when there are conflicting findings. It was a very, very valuable chapter, and I think everybody should read it. And I know, so like what I do, I don't think that's ideal at all. <laughs> like, I wish I wasn't like this. I do think, though, if it's between like eating all day, like if you are a late night eater and you had to choose between eating all day or having a late night window, I mean, I know you had the Matson study that compared like a five to nine window to an all-day eating and didn't seem to find benefits. But I think what I'm trying to say is I think finding the fasting window that you can stick to and do consistently might outweigh forcing yourself into a, a different eating window that is not as enjoyable or like that you can't stick to as easily because it's not what you thrive on. Yeah, I think, you know, we don't have enough studies to say for sure, but I think what you're proposing there is entirely possible. It could be the, yeah, it's healthier to do, you know, a, a long fast each night and, but eat in the morning and early afternoon. But compared to eating all day, it may in fact, you know, be pretty healthy by comparison to do what you're talking about doing. So that that's entirely possible. I don't think we have, you know, enough research to, you know, prove it or disprove it. The, the one thing that I will say is, you know, again, I was one of these people who, I mean... I, my favorite country in the world is is uh, countries in the world are like to visit are Spain and Italy, and that's because they eat and drink till all hours of the night, right? That's my preferred lifestyle. I am I have always been a nighttime person. I did not. I did not want to make this change, but I thought I would make the experiment, and I I, I was just stunned in like three days. All of a sudden, this 50-year-old habit of mine of eating dinner, you know, at night and eating well late into the night with bedtime snacks and so on, it just vanished. It just absolutely went away as though my body had been, as I say in the book, you know, sort of waiting for me to do this all along. It just felt so natural. And the research shows, you know, if, if that is in fact something like what's going on, it's probably because I'm eating now more in sync with what my circadian rhythms are asking me to do. So, you know, the, the one thing I would say is 
you know, try it for a week, see what you think. If you get a, you know, a week where you can do it, try amending it, try playing with it. And you're right, like different people will come to different conclusions and they'll have different things that they feel comfortable with and different things that they can do with their work schedule and not do. But, you know, you might just experiment with shifting some of your calories earlier in the day, see what you think yourself. I am all about self-experimentation, finding what works for you. Before, when you're eating a dinner, were you doing intermittent fasting with that? Or were you just eating throughout the day and eating more, mostly at night, like, or more at night? So there was a period before I, right, right as I was starting research on this book where I had shifted to this daily intermittent fasting and my eating window was exactly the one that I just criticized, which was I skipped breakfast. I would have my first meal around 11 a.m. or noon and try to have my last food by about eight o'clock or so at night. And I'd say the calories were about evenly divided between, you know, sort of lunchtime and dinner time. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. So well, listeners, <laughs> get the book read it, read all the chapters. And I can't wait to hear what people think. The last question that I ask every single guest on this show, and it's just because I realize more and more each day how important mindset is. And we didn't even talk about, you have a whole fascinating chapter on Russia and you know fasting for mental health and the effects on the brain and fascinating things people with like psychiatric disorders have experienced historically with fasting. So listeners will just have to get the book to read that. But what is something that you're grateful for? Oh, well, as we're recording this, Thanksgiving has just happened. And more than anything else, I've been thinking over the Thanksgiving long weekend that I am grateful that I have had the opportunity to share this information with people. We didn't talk much about my own health struggles, but I really do credit some of the information that I found in this book with basically having saved my life. And I'm in an awfully privileged, fortunate position that I'm able to write a book and share these ideas and hopefully uh, help some other people the way that some of these ideas helped me. So I'm most grateful at this moment for the opportunity to, to get to do that. I cannot thank you enough for what you're doing because nobody has done this. Like I kept thinking so much when I was reading the book, I was like, I can't believe that I have been writing, thinking, talking about fasting for so long. And this is all just completely new information to me. Like I'm, my mind was being blown. I think you've done a huge service to humanity to compile all this information in a really wonderful read. I can't thank you enough. It's amazing. I look forward to your future book. Are you writing one now? No, I'm busy with podcasts. Oh, yes. All the interviews. <laughs> Which is fantastic. I, I'm very happy to have them. But no, I've I've got some ideas floating around in my head, but n nothing concrete. Awesome. Well, I will eagerly look forward to your future work. And hopefully we can connect again in the future. And again, thank you so much for everything that you're doing. Oh, yeah. How can people best follow your work? What links? Yeah. So I'm not huge on social media. I am on Instagram. I think it's Steve Hendricks 99 is my handle. But best way to... To stay in touch is through my website, which is just stevehendricks.org. And as I mentioned, the book is not a prescriptive book. It's not a how-to about fasting, though you can certainly glean a lot of how-to information from it. But so I've gotten a zillion questions about, you know, how do I do this? How do I do that? My Frequently Asked Questions page probably has, I don't know, 10,000 words of answers to the most common questions I get. So a lot of people have found that useful. And if you want to get in touch, just shoot me an email. It's on my contact page. Awesome. Well, I will put links to all of that in the show notes. And thank you so much again for your time. I treasure it. I do not take it for granted. And again, thank you for everything that you're doing. And hopefully we can talk again in the future. Thanks, Melanie. It's been a great pleasure. Thanks, Steve. Thank you so much for listening to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. For more information, 
you can check out my book, What When Wine, Lose Weight and Feel Great with Paleo-Style Meals, Intermittent Fasting, and Wine, as well as my blog, MelanieAvalon.com. Feel free to contact me at podcast at MelanieAvalon.com. And always remember, you got this.